I think he, he speaks yeah. to both the engineers and like the managers and kind of yeah. people of all different backgrounds. Wasn't it the last year at GTC when he was, uh, he had like a virtual uh, AI yes. generated kind of avatar yes. thing when he made a presentation? Yeah, yeah. so for I think two minutes, they completely generated him yeah. um, where like everything was CGI essentially. Yeah. Now in the latest one, they have this like virtual Jensen all the time. That is like computer generated. His voice is also uh, generated yeah. on the fly. That's, that sounds like him. Um, and also the sort of what he speaks. Uh, virtual Jensen is also generated by one of like the large um, language models that they train from like uh, Megatron. Um, so basically everything so from this. Can you ask, like, ask questions to virtual Jensen and have yes, it reply? I, I think so, at least internally. Yeah, I think yeah. that's coming externally as well. And they're, they're expecting, there was a demo on, on GTC where they're expecting virtual avatars to join meetings as well in order to act on certain requests and look mm -hmm. things up and stuff like that. So it's, uh, in some cases, it feels like they're, they're, they're creating the world in front of you, which is definitely a, a big change from coming to spot from Spotify, where it's yeah. a music app and a podcast app, but it's, it's not the, the same. I imagine, I mean, that is the proper type of chatbot that you would like to have. Like if you yes. have a properly, you know, a natural language and I guess a speech generated, uh, you know, responses uh, yes. in real time, right? Uh, that's, yes. That's yeah, they, they talk, like they, they describe it as like your digital twin, yeah. um, which is interesting, which is goes about like avatars, but they're also doing like sort of digital twins of, of virtuals or like real spaces. Mm. So they work with like BMW and, and Amazon to basically oh, yeah. completely generate or like have a virtual version of their warehouses and their factories. Is, is that the thing that they call om Omniverse? That is Omniverse, yeah. yeah. So it's basically like a physics-enabled... Um, uh, like computer vision systems similar to like uh, where you can, can kind of generate yeah. um, like virtual worlds. Yeah, I mean, I'll add this as a topic because I think that would be interesting to, to hear yes. more about and also, you know, thinking about Facebook's metaverse and whatnot and how this can Yes. Play out. Yeah, yeah everyone all of a sudden started moving into the metaverse. Like I said, yeah. it's a hot topic. But uh, yeah, NVIDIA is in an interesting place, of course, there because they have like for 20 years experience with computer graphics and kind yeah, of being exactly. a gaming company. Yeah. Um, so they don't have to make an aggressive move like Microsoft had to do with, yeah. with buying Activision. Yeah. But also in GTC now, that was, was it two weeks ago or? I think two or three weeks ago, yeah. yeah. And it was a new release as well of, of Merlin, right? Yes. Yeah, so actually it was our Merlin 1.0 release. So we, uh, how long has Merlin been around, by the way? I think the team has been around for like two years. Yes. Um, it started, I think, with my manager as like an inv individual contributor with one other engineer. And now he became the manager and like started hiring. Mm. Um, so we have people that worked on, on Amazon before, Spotify. Um, and it, it started kind of with what is the, what are the biggest bottlenecks when it comes to training machine learning models for recommender systems, mm -hmm. especially on the GPU? Mm -hmm. And kind of the, the two areas that they identified was um, data transformations. So typically, if you have tabular data that you need, to, you need to transform that in order to give that to a machine learning model. Mm -hmm. So you need to do things like if you have continuous features, so mm -hmm. like real numbers, like mm -hmm. the number of times that like a user logged in, for instance, yeah. you need to all scale that in the same range. Otherwise, right. like these algorithms won't be able to train. And for categorical features, so these are things like genres. Don't go too technical, technical right. now. I think yes. we have a separate you know topic when we yes. go into what Merlin really is and yes. stuff like that. But I'll okay, keep so it high level. Yeah. So basically, mm -hmm. those common transformations. Mm -hmm. um, you're able now to do on the GPU, so it's more like a 10x uh, speed improvement. 
mm-hmm. which was always uh, like a bottleneck before. Mm-hmm. And the, the second thing was that the, the data loader. So when you train a model, sort of getting the data from disk into the model was a major bottleneck as well. Right. And in a lot of cases, because that was so slow, like the GPU were underutilized. So with yeah, like right. the standard data loaders that you had and like TensorFlow and yeah. PyTorch, kind of the, the machine learning frameworks that people are using these days, um, like th- that was the biggest bottleneck. So like if we, when we fixed that, all of a sudden, like uh, because it's like computer vision, like yeah. and, and natural language, like when they started using specialized hardware like GPUs, mm-hmm. they saw like at least like a ten x or or twenty x speed right. improvement. But that wasn't the case for tabular data and recommender right. systems. And then with these data loaders, they actually could get there. Is that one of the biggest highlights, or what are the biggest highlights for Merlin one point So. Yeah, so so there's two things that I just described are were part of MV Tabular, and it was kind of like the mm-hmm. first library that they had, and was the only library that they had when I joined. Yeah. And now at Merlin 1.0, we released the first version of Merlin models, so a machine learning modeling library that works with like the, both the two major uh, machine learning frameworks out there, so TensorFlow mm-hmm. and PyTorch. Mm-hmm. PyTorch is still in the making, but the TensorFlow is kind of is getting there. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so which one is is uh, the furthest ahead, so to speak? Is it TensorFlow so, or PyTorch? So, uh, TensorFlow is the furthest ahead because okay. most of our, our customers are actually using TensorFlow because mm. uh, his track was around there earlier and like for production use cases. Mm. Um, it's been like kind of the, the leading contender for a while. Mm. It's slowly changing though. So we do expect more and more companies to move to PyTorch, but mm. for recommender systems use cases, it's it's been mostly TensorFlow. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing more what NB, NB Tabular and Merlin models are. Yes. Um, but h- how does it work when you release like 1.0 in a big conference like GTC? How, do you have a, like a big show or, or someone presenting so, something or how does so it work? It was mentioned in like the, the keynote from Jensen. Mm-hmm. And then we had uh, a talk from our manager that presented like where we were. And then we had like a, was it a two hour tutorial where we basically went in depth around Merlin models mm-hmm. in a more interactive fashion where people there were um, taking part of it. We would give them like a virtual note with like a GPU. Mm-hmm. They can actually run some notebooks and, and train some models. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that was that was kind of it. But like in the in the keynote, it's always a bit challenging because yeah. like it's it's typically one and a half hours long and like they're doing so many different things at the same time. And Mm. for a lot of other use cases, let's say like self-driving cars, Mm. it's much easier to come up with like a nice demo because they just show a car that's driving itself or parking itself. When it comes to recommender systems, like we don't have flashy demos like that. Um, So that is one of the things that we always struggle with. Like we can, for people that are doing it, we can kind of convey them what we're doing and why it's interesting. Mm. But for the general public, it's always a bit challenging where basically what the only thing we could do is giving numbers like, how recommender systems are used in the major platforms and how it's shaping the internet. Yeah. And then we can solve that for you with this tool chain. That's kind of what we can do. Sometimes annoying when, you know, the cool technical or mathematical uh, solutions are not as sexy, like visualized or, or you don't yes. have as an attractive way to, to visualize it and speak about it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then it's like extra challenging because NVIDIA doesn't have too many use cases for recommender systems internally. Like, mm. For instance, Spotify, like everyone could play around with, with systems like Discover Weekly and yeah. then they could kind of get a sense of what these algorithms were doing. But we're basically providing the infrastructure and the tooling for companies to do that. But yeah. we don't have access to the data, yeah. which makes it even harder to come up with a good demo. And like, yeah. there are not that many like 
industrial scale open source data sets out there mm. that we can use for this. And even like there are a few more coming, um, so it's getting better. But even with those data sets that are out there, it's hard to make it interactive. It's not that we can sort of give you as a user or like someone that looks at the presentation a sense of like, okay, this is what the algorithm does because it's, it's trained on like yeah, I remember, task. you know, we had a fun thing in a hack week in Spotify at one point. Um, I'm not sure if you were there at that point, but we, we had Bartendro. It mm-hmm. was a robot bartender. Oh, interesting. And then we basically built a recommender system for connecting uh, the, the music taste that you have mm-hmm. with what drink you like. Mm. <laughs> so we had a user item matrix thing or, you know, annotating some data, you know, what kind of drinks you like, and then you connect it to the Spotify profile that you have. Mm-hmm. Then you try to predict, you know, what kind of drink you should have. <laughs> It, it was a really fun thing. I mean, you should have that as an NVIDIA kind of showcase, perhaps, for, for recommenders. We're systems. always looking for, for new things. Like, uh, yeah, we, we were definitely, like, we're right now we're basically building, like, the first platforms or our tools are not really up to the task. But mm. now for next year, we want to do more, actually, customer engagement and actually get some usage of some of our tooling. Mm. Like, NVTabler is used, like, a reasonable amount, but, like, Merlin Models is completely new. Mm. We have Merlin Systems, which is more on, like, the serving side. Mm. Also, it's, like, the 1.0 release, so we have no external use cases of it yet mm. um, so it would be interesting if we all get it to a point where we can actually start doing these kind of things and mm. um, make the demos more interactive as well yeah. because there's a lot you can do with data on the internet it of is, course right. yeah. and just to close off GTC a bit and, and um, what does GTC stand for again conference name it's okay now i'm gonna fail hard because luckily they didn't let me do like an nvidia start oh. exam because i would i guess it's like the <laughs> no but i remember i went to uh, gpu technology yes. conference of oh, course yeah. should have been able to guess that actually yeah that I, mean, I, I, I think i went to the gtc in 2018 or something mm-hmm. And I think it, they had the first release of the GTX machine at that point. Oh, right. The one, yes. GTX, GTX one. Yes. And, and they had one and I could go up and I could touch it. Like <laughs> I could put my hand on the machine and I took a picture of like, this is the first time, you know, you have a GTX machine. And those are nice looking machines as well. Like it's, yes. uh, it's, it's fun to see in real life. It, that's harder now, of course, as well. Like the last few, because it's twice a year, the last few conferences have been fully remote. Mm. Um, we had some hope that this one would be f- the first one in a while, be in person. Yeah. But then COVID's killed up again. So now our hope is that in the fall, we could actually do it in person again, because that would be great. It would we be should. a good opportunity for me as well to meet some people. I had actually a big disappointment with uh, GTX, and that was actually we were... D- had a DGX machine delivered to this place, the data club here, mm-hmm. that we record the podcast. And I was like, oh shit, we have to do a cool demo because we, we had like a recording here, live stream and whatnot. And I was thinking, ah, we have to do something cool, you know, demonstrating how fast it is and right. et cetera. So I was actually preparing that quite a lot. And then it came here and it was like a dummy machine. It was like a, a DDX machine that has some kind of manufacturing error. So it was just like for shows. It, oh, it, really? it didn't really run. <laughs> oh, I didn't even know it existed. Yeah. So I was so, uh, you know, disappointed. <laughs> it was uh, so heavy. It was around 150 kilos. So we needed like <laughs> 10 people to bring it in. And then it made the hole in the, yeah. in the floor. Upstairs. Oh, it did? Yeah. So it oh. was, uh, so we put it basically on a, on some kind of a stand. Uh, but it, it is uh, impressively a uh, good looking machine. Hey, it is. Although so you're even work sending out like the one with faults because people want to showcase it. Exactly. Just for demonstration purposes. And, and then it didn't run. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That's a disappointment. So yeah. the next one, actually, NVIDIA sends to us, you know, we have 
uh, one that actually works. Yeah. <laughs> Nvidia, please one uh, send one to to Hyper Data Club. What's the you cost? Can send yeah. me one as well uh, if they want to. But exactly. uh, I just have, have I, I have like a beefy machine with two uh, good GPUs, but no DGX machine, unfortunately. A 100s or H1? No, so the A 100s they didn't send it because they need special cooling and they yeah. don't work for graphics. Yeah. So it's just like uh, a six thousand or something. And they're good though. It's like forty gigabytes of memory each. Like it's. Yeah. Uh, I can't work without them anymore. Like you start to get used to it uh, pretty fast. For gaming or AI purposes? Mostly AI purposes, work yeah. purposes. I haven't started uh, using it for gaming yet, but uh, maybe one day. Yeah, yeah. Only 150k for just. Is it a 100? <laughs> no, it's a GGX. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think they have like a <laughs> rental agreement as well. I've seen some people yes. that like rented it for a while. Yeah. Ah. Only $9,000 per month. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, we can I'm still rent it for two months. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have like, sold it for two months. <laughs> Should have it at my upcoming uh, Data Innovation Summit yeah. you know, as a showcase. I think a lot of people will be really interested in seeing that thing. Okay, I'm trying to close off the GTC topic, but it's so many interesting stuff there. I didn't see the keynote. Do you mm -hmm. remember any other highlights? Uh, I know the H100 uh, ship was one of the highlights, right? They yes. Released. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. a new like top tier GPU. So um, that's the successor of A100? Exactly. Right? Yes. Which I guess it's again like a 10x improvement in, in many ways. I said, um, I think three to five, but I'm not sure. It depends on like the use case. Yeah, I was reading yeah. a little bit on about today, but yeah, it's, uh, it's wild. And then I think, so then they have like the, the DGX machine. So it's eight of those. Um, With H100s in them? I or? think so as well. Yeah. Oh. And now they also release because then they have like this, uh, NV link. So the GPUs yeah. have GPU to GPU, um, communication, which yeah. is ultra fast. Yeah. And now they also release like the NV link. Um, I think it's like a routing box. Or I'm, not, I'm not sure what like the, the, the name for it is, but it's basically you can just link DGX machines as well and you can just yeah. scale out more and more. Yeah, between DGX machines. Exactly, right? yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we have the big cluster in, in Sweden in Linköping called Berzelius. It has like 60 DGX machines in it. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's uh, one of the bigger ones in Sweden at least. Nice. With A100s in it. But, but right, yeah, it's that's, still uh, blazingly yeah. fast. So, yeah, yeah. Nice. What kind of company is it? Can companies use that or is it more for a governmental? Oof, you open a, mm -hmm. a <laughs> <laughs> what do you say, a bag of worms here. But uh, we can speak about that. I actually add that as a topic. I think that's interesting. You know, how, how do you make these kind of beta clusters useful? Uh, right. Because it's funded by um, partly um, Wallenberg. Mm -hmm. But then they want to open it up for, for certain purposes, uh, partly, of course, research, but also for some potential commercial purposes. Right. Um, but to do that, it, it's not an easy thing. But So um, I, I'll get back to that later. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it's hard one, to, uh, to nail that from like a policy perspective. Yeah. But training like big Swedish language models is one of the use cases, of course. Right. That yeah, is. that makes sense. I guess that doesn't always get prioritized by the big tech companies out there. Yeah. Okay, cool. So <clears throat> the main hi highlights was basically... The H100, the GDX machines, uh, anything else you remember? Um, I think they had like a new version of Omniverse, uh, Omniverse right. Cloud, so it makes it easier for, for designers that are designing these virtual worlds to, to collaborate, Yeah, um, which was interesting. It's, it's, it's hard because they, they basically just release stuff like for like one and a half hours, they talk about it. So it's, yeah. uh, it's a lot of information, but it's, uh, yes. they're, they're kind of so moving on, on, on all cylinders. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to just Google up a couple of highlights here top five announcements and see what it is here uh, oh, it's slow. Yeah, what is interesting to me is that these these gpus are like utilized more and more for various use cases mm. 
like it started with gaming, of course, and then it was like machine learning modeling training, but now it's also data pre-processing and they have specialized things for mm. um, genomics and then, yeah, what I work on the recommender systems. Mm. Um, so the, they're, they're using it across the stack kind of like we're, we're kind of work, like moving towards a, like a platform where like if you have an end-to-end pipeline that like transforms some data, trains a model and evaluate it, yeah. instead of only doing the model training on the GPU, you can do all of it on the GPU, yeah, yeah. which really means that like no. your end-to-end pipeline starts to go like... Uh, I, mean, I think that's a really interesting point, especially in recommender systems. That's important, yes. I guess. So it says something about million X computing. I remember I heard something about it, you know, yes. but AI is basically, it's not... Um, the, the normal kind of uh, Morse law, like doubling every eighteen yes. months, it's actually million x performance on some of the tasks that you can do if you're using deep learning properly. And it's wild. Um, I mean, like since it's sort of parallel computing at its core with these mm. large matrix factors or like these large matrix multiplication operators. Mm. So then, like you have more leadway as well in order to get like yeah. more than Morse law, of yeah. course, yeah, yeah. because the algorithms are sort of optimized for just making them faster by just getting more yeah, cores and just them. converting them into a GPU as exactly you know, yes. makes it super big. Other stuff was like the transformer based, you know, ships. I guess that's H one hundred have special you know transformer support. Right. And yeah. The uh, transformer is kind of taking over machine learning. So they are doing more and more to optimize these things. Yeah. Um, and they're working on this library called Megatron as well to make it easier yeah, right. for companies and, and customers to train these really large uh, models. I think the biggest that NVIDIA has till today is it's like 540 billion parameters out of my head, yeah. which is wild. It's like then that these models become this big. Mm, yeah. And it has a lot of implications. We can talk about that. But that is, Yes, uh, I have it at this topic, you know, <coughs> the scaling of AI models, yes. et cetera, in, in the future. But also some other things was data centers turning into AI factories. And I guess it's the connection yes. of, between GDX machines and stuff that you mentioned. Yeah, they're seeing themselves more and more as a data center company. So not just individual GPUs, but just like uh, lining them up and just making sure that these things can be used in end-to-end, like real use cases. And, uh, you know, increasing demand for robotics system. I think that's it's been lagging for a long time, but glad to see that some stuff is happening there. And then also the thing with Omnimus, you mentioned the digital twins for next generation AI stuff. Yeah, and they're expecting like a Mm -hmm. lot of implication for robotics there as well. Like if you can simulate more... Right, things right. out there and it's more realistic because yeah. often like getting training data for these robotic systems is super mm. like costly mm. so the more you can actually simulate and then take a big back in the back in the real world is that that makes it super powerful and that's why omniverse is very interesting because it has sort of physics baked in so therefore yeah. like it's super easy to create these virtual worlds that kind of behave in a similar way as mm. like the real world I mean, it must be a perfect like sweet spot for NVIDIA that had like a background in gaming and rendering and graphics yes. and, and now also in AI and combining the two into a building like a digital twin or an omniverse. It seems like a perfect fit in some ways. Yes. Yeah. And especially if you look at Jensen's background, like it's it's perfect, like how the world, like where it's going, like it's it's perfect for, for the company. They could have never had envisioned it 20 years ago when they started yeah. it. But yeah, a lot of elements where they happen to be working on, they uh, it all comes together. But they made some impressive bets as well, like very early on. And like when deep learning started to work, like they really kind of pivoted and like invested mm. huge sums of money and were one of the few. Like if you look at Intel and a few others, like mm. they weren't as aggressive. Yeah. And it definitely paid off in the long run. But yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's still a tough competition out there. So it's like they have like a strong lead now, but there are no guarantees that you can keep that up in the future, of course. Yeah, looking into the future is an interesting topic. So right. let's speak about that shortly. But, you know, Mark Romain, very welcome to the podcast. Um, Thank you. We, I think we've known each other for eight, seven, 
uh, seven, six years or something, right? Or when was it you did the, the intern thing? Yeah, the yeah first you, time? you hired me at Spotify as a summer intern. Yeah, when right. I was, 15? I think, yeah, I'm, I'm 30 now. I think it was when I was 24, 25, so maybe mm -hmm. five, six years ago, yeah, maybe right. seven, yeah. I remember I, I, I had a very difficult thing um, for you as a project, but you actually managed to do that, which was very surprising to me. <laughs> but uh, I, I think we should actually move that, move into that shortly. Um, yes. The deep retention, if I mm -hmm. remember correctly. Exactly. Right? Yes. Uh, because it's connected also to recommender systems, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and I think that's very, you know, nicely plays into what you work with today as well. And also, I mean, you're an awesome person in many ways, not only like technically, but you've also been, you know, a winner of multiple awards and, you know, you had the EIT summer school thing, right? Yes. Yeah, that was my, my yeah. studies. Yeah, the masters that I did. Yeah, and hackathons that you won? A few hackathons. Yeah, I've always been quite competitive. When, yeah. when there's a competition element, I, yeah. I like that. I, yeah. I played a lot of sports when I was in high school, so I always had that in me. Yeah, um, and it's really impressive. So it's a true pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much. And um, let, uh, let perhaps you start, you know, simply, you know, who, who is Mark Romain? How would you describe yourself? What's your background? Yeah, so my name is, is Mark. I'm 30 years old now. I'm currently living here in Sweden again. Um, I think this is like the third time I'm living here. So mm -hmm. I grew up in the Netherlands, did my bachelor's in what's then called knowledge engineering. So basically like artificial intelligence. Um, took me five years to, to finish. I had different priorities at that time. I was 17 when I started, so I wasn't the most um, serious student out there. Um, and then in the beginning, I, yeah, it was, I was kind of thinking that, so my dad has a background in machine learning. So that's kind of like how okay. I ended up there. Otherwise, I don't think I would ever have found these studies. Mm. Um, <clears throat> And I, I started building websites when I was like 16 or something. So yeah. one of the the competitions that we won in high school was basically for like it's in the Netherlands, you write like a final paper um, before you graduate. Right. Um, I think it's like 20, 20 or 30% of your grade or something. Mm -hmm. I mean, similar to Sweden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, we built this website. So in, in high school, we had this graphical ca calculator, like the mm -hmm. Texas Instruments. Yeah. Yeah. T-A-T-I. Yeah. 84. like Yeah. And, uh, I had the HP forty-eight. Uh, Hewlett Packard had a similar one. It was these two that were competing. I think the right, TI eighty-five. Yeah. I think in the Netherlands, everyone had the Texas Instruments, so maybe it okay. had some sort of monopoly, or maybe we had to like buy mm -hmm. that one. I don't know, mm -hmm. some some sketchy deal. Yeah. Um, but you can basically program in basic on these. And then yeah. I think like the first time our physics teacher like explained us like how to write one of those programs for one of the formulas we were taught, mm -hmm. and then we're like, all right, this makes life much easier. So we started implementing those for a lot of them, and then we built a website on it where basically people could download their own um, and upload their own versions of it because every time we had a test people always come to us and you had this like little USB cable that you can sort of transfer programs from one to the other yeah. they always wanted like the, the ones that we had um, so that's kind of like how it started in, in programming and then we I worked for like a design agency for like a summer when I was like 16 or 17 so then I got like Photoshop Mm -hmm. like a layout of a website and then I had to turn it into CSS and HTML, yeah, um, which yeah. was interesting. Um, and then I started like studying knowledge engineering, thinking that it would be more engineering. I actually thought it would be sort of like more cognitive psychology as well, mm -hmm. um, where like we would study the brain more and then kind of mm -hmm. try to apply it. It was kind of my version that I created in my head. Um, as you hear, I, I didn't research it all too properly. <laughs> I guess I just followed my dad's path. Um, and I, I struggled with like the, the large amount of math Uh, mm -hmm. that was in there and I didn't really see it leaning to anywhere and it was also pre-deep learning so all the yeah. machine learning methods that we were learning were not working at all mm -hmm. so 
at some point I was like, okay, I just want to go back to, or I just kind of want to uh, focus more on real engineering. Because yeah. I always worked on the side, like 12 hours a week as an engineer at like a company oh, in yeah. Mastery. Um, and uh, so then my master's was more like general computer science mm -hmm. because I, I saw like when I was working part-time that like the thing that was holding me back the most was actually the engineering skills and sort of le learning more about computers. I never really understood like how network calls were being made. Like we're, we're not going to get too technical. There was a lot out there that I didn't know. Yeah. Um, and I kind of was self-taught in, in that front. Yeah. Um, so then I think after four years, I only had like 80 credits out of the 180. So I was <laughs> definitely not doing well. And I was also telling my parents that it was going better than next went. So then I had to come clean. I was like, okay, now I get my stuff together. Yeah. So in a year I, I finished it and sort of realized that I needed to get out of the city and I really wanted to go abroad. So then I, I started doing these studies um, where I studied one year in Berlin and then the second year was at KDH here Berlin. in Stockholm. And it was the EIT exactly, double exam yeah, thing. Exactly. Right. So it was my, my specialization was cloud computing. So that was like 75%. Mm. So distributed systems. Like at, in Berlin, we had a bunch of classes from people that were behind Apache Flink, if you mm. know that. Oh, I know uh, the founders. <laughs> I mean, they are awesome people. Yeah, so that, that, that was amazing. So that really got me like the, the proper computer science uh, like experience. And yeah. I, I really liked it. Um, and then we got some like entrepreneurship courses on the side. Mm. And then when I moved here, like that was kind of in the summer, I started realizing, oh, actually my machine learning knowledge could be useful because mm. deep learning just started like working essentially. Right. When I started to read up on it more, it was essentially, well, we can scale up these algorithms now because we learned a little bit more about the algorithms, but there was a large part was also, we can just build better and larger like distributed systems, mm. which is essentially what I was learning in my masters. Like, okay, mm. this is actually the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. So then I, I really prioritized trying to write my thesis around like some deep learning or machine learning subject to get back to speed. And mm. here at KDH, I took a few machine learning courses. Mm. I realized again that the math was tough, but I'm happy I did it. So then I, I wrote my thesis here in, in Stockholm at a company like called Doer. Yes. So the, um, it's like an accountancy company from like a serial entrepreneur that already like sold a few of his earlier companies for, for a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So it was a very different experience, like joining a startup like that that had already kind of How like big were amount they of at that time? Or? I think when we joined, so it was me and Jan, like one of my, my best Dutch friends that I was studying with. Mm. We both joined as like machine learning interns to write our thesis. Yeah. And the idea was essentially that we would use deep learning to extract information from receipts right because people were sending them receipts and they wanted to kind of extract what the total amount was where yes. was it was received and, and stuff like that i but know you know the company that i worked for before was Peltorion, and they actually worked yes. with doer as well ah interesting they, yeah yeah so we had like um so my supervisor was Rulov, was like mm. a dutch yeah, guy yeah, was uh, was Rulof. quite active here in like the machine learning space yes. and he was working for them at the time um, and then we, we asked them, okay, could you be our supervisor? And then we, we write our thesis there and we set it all up. And by the time we started, Rulof was already gone. Mm. Um, so then we were kind of on our own and like they didn't really want to give us access to the data all that much. Mm. We still wanted to sort of write something that could potentially be useful when they gave us the data or when mm. they decided to use the algorithms. So then we found this data set of kind of annotated um, scientific papers mm -hmm. where the data set consists of like the PDF so we could extract the text, but they were also completely annotated where for each word it had the bounding boxes essentially, like where was right. it located on oh. the page. Nice. So then our task became, could we extract based on the word and kind of the place where it is placed on, on the paper, mm -hmm. what part of the paper it, it um, consists of. So like mm -hmm. the title, the authors, 
um, the abstract and, and stuff like that. And then there were two of us. So then Jan kind of took the computer vision approach yeah. where you just convert the PDF into an image and then you try to basically write, get bounding boxes around, okay, this is the title, mm -hmm. this is the abstract and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And mine was more on the NLP side of things where we used the text and the location and then I wrote like a, like a recurrent neural network in LSTM to then word by word to predict what part it was was um what part of the paper was 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 part of yeah. and then the idea was that then afterwards they could combine it so then like computer vision with nlp and then hopefully it would mm. um, increase the accuracy we never really got there but it was it was a very fun project and then that was also the first time actually we got to work with gpus they gave us oh, like right. a box in our office mm. so it felt very real time every time we deployed a new model we trained it we could hear this machine going off in the <laughs> background and making yeah, a lot of cool. noise so it was it was a very fun experience um, to be there and it was very good that we were two of us as well because they, mm. we got very little help I from mean it's surprisingly hard to just do OCR optical character yes. recognition if you if you have this more structure into it with tables and whatnot right. I think there was a Google paper recently like yes I saw that we actually me right. and Jan sent it to each other like okay actually it's yeah. now starting to be solved but um, do you remember yeah. what, what it was called the paper uh, I can't remember the paper anymore but yeah. I, I think it was some really impressive yes, exactly. thing. exactly. And it was also on structured documents, actually. It had right. a similar idea where, mm. like, just also on the location, you can infer a lot of things. I yeah. think it was also for, like, magazines. And I think receipts was also one of, like, the issues, yeah. like, one of the things they looked at. Yeah. Um, but it was also a time where, like, machine learning just started working. I remember, like, while we were interns there, it was... Um, when DeepMind had like that whole event where they won against like the, the world champion in Go. Mm -hmm. So it felt like quite that. inspiring for us as well to sort of like be in like the middle of that where we just started learning about it. And I think it was like the first version of TensorFlow came out while mm -hmm. we were interns there. And then we started like working with TensorFlow, mm -hmm. working with Keras. So it was, it was an interesting time where we basically just got like a, a fast course where we can just try things out and we had good hardware mm -hmm. and that led to like the summer internship at Spotify mm -hmm. where how did that, that happen by the way I don't rem remember exactly a, it was a weird process at the time where you could apply for different I think the different verticals so you had mm -hmm. like design and then back end front end and then machine learning I think was one of them as well yeah. and then I think the majority of the process was actually CV based so I had to send my CV mm -hmm. and then at some point the recruiter told me you were like the last 25 and then I think then it went to the teams and then they yeah. cut it down to like five yeah. I think in, I think in the end they had like one interview for mm -hmm. like 30 or 40 minutes mm -hmm. um, with Boxen mm -hmm. nice guy boxing at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah and he got like kicked out of his meeting room in the middle of like the interview and then just like started like still talking to me trying to like walk through the office in order to find like a new room um, and then the day later, like they told me that, like I, I was, I, I could could start, mm. which is surprising to me because I thought there would be many more interviews. Mm. And then at the same time, actually, I also was in the process for this startup accelerator called Entrepreneur First. You're right, right. Um, because kind of my master's was this combination of entrepreneurship and like computer science. So I really had this sort of feeling that I wanted to try to like start my own company. Mm. And with, with Entrepreneur First, it was basically an opportunity where you can. Um, get funding for three months and depending on like what, so they had like three archetypes, they called it. So they had domain experts who were typically mm -hmm. people had a few years of working experience. But, but how does that work? Because it's kind of a fun topic or interesting yes. topic that I think a lot of people could be interested in understanding. But they basically have some kind of application that you can submit to. Yeah, exactly. It's a few uh -huh. rounds and then when you get in, like now I think they changed the process a little bit. They have in more cities. But when I joined, 
then you would get in and in the first three months you would join without an idea. You would not mm. like know any of these people. Yeah. And you basically had like three months to figure it out. And then like while you were there, they gave you training about certain things about running a company. And then you would just like meet people for coffee and just trying mm. to figure out what are we going to do. So how was the interviews or, or the rounds, you know, before you actually got in there? Uh, was it testing technical yeah, so there was like a Yeah, what? there was a coding interview. So they had like, they quite early on, they would put a label on you. So mm. there was um, like a domain expert, which I was not because I had zero working experience. Yeah. I came straight out of university. Yeah. They had like technical experts, I think it was called. So typically people with PhDs. Yeah. And then they had this label like a generalist. So people that have oh. just done quite a few things that can just build stuff. So the idea would be that you would join someone that already had an idea or like some experience mm. and you would be responsible kind of like building the first mm. version. So then it was like a technical interview and like some of like the, the working experience. And what set me apart because I... I took five years to finish my studies and I essentially worked 12 hours a week at least uh, along like the, the full period of it. So I kind of came down by like a year of, of working experience mm -hmm. through that. Right. And then there were a lot of people from like Cambridge and Oxford and stuff that like had to spend all their time studying because there was so much pressure. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was kind of like I had a different background for that. Mm -hmm. um, so then, yeah, I had no idea when I wanted to start. So I just came there, talked to people and then you try a few different teams. How, how do you meet up the other, the other people? That you're just there all day long. So you just meet each other at a coffee machine or you just, mm -hmm. uh, there was like this website where you can see everyone's profiles and then people mm -hmm. would ask you. Mm -hmm. In some cases they would think about an idea and then they want to pitch it to you because maybe mm -hmm. you had like a background that maybe you could build it. So then you, you kind of have to juggle a lot of things at the same time. I remember mm -hmm. at some point I had to choose between something and like, um, computer security and it was something for like oil transport mm -hmm. and it's industry that I've never worked with don't understand anything about mm -hmm. so you have to like in a quite short period of time make the call like is this something that I want to spend my time on right. do I think it's viable do I think this person is someone that I could start a company with because mm -hmm. it's kind of like a social experiment as well because mm -hmm. you're trying to get to know each other during the process kind mm -hmm. of it's this trial and error mm -hmm. and then as soon as you start like a company or like a, an idea then they give you a venture partner where you meet every week yeah. and then you kind of like talk it through so right. I started an NLP like a chatbot type right. company through there um, with someone that yeah I, I met once and then we, we kind of hit it off and like, hey, let, let's try this. And like that one of the philosophies at that time of Entrepreneur First was they push you in a team fast and just yeah. like trying to make you work it out. So then we... Don't, don't forget to take any of the awesome yes. kind of Easter snacks that we have here. We have a, kind of an Easter special here. And Goran has spent a lot of time demonstrating his, um, his skills in the kitchen as well. Which is uh, impressive, I think. So if uh, you haven't heard me and Anders be opening a restaurant in a bar in a couple of years, <laughs> <laughs> you're preparing for it. Starting nice. the train for that. So, yeah. My first proper Swedish Easter. This is nice. Yeah. With some salmon and shrimps and uh, a lot of cool stuff. Sill as well. Uh, so that's, that's awesome. Uh, awesome. And okay, so some kind of chatbot. Do you regret that decision to, to mm. start a project with a chatbot? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that. But you see like the conversational AIs that are out there now with like billions of parameters. We were very mm. far from it. But at the time there was a lot of hype. Mm. And um, I remember that there was a lot of these products out there where you would speak to it or you would write to it and they mm. would kind of extract the intent. Mm. So it was very like rule-based. So yeah. based on it, and then they kind of had like an internal tree-based structure. Like, okay, if someone, because the idea was that you would also like order an Uber over mm. like Facebook Messenger and stuff mm. like that, that never really like took off. Mm. 
So then the idea was, okay, if we can know what the intent of the user is. We have some tree base. We ask you this question, you come back, and then there's like some sort of back and forth. So our idea is, okay, if it go, it's going to go like that, then something like A-B testing kind of things is needed as well. Like, okay, how do you navigate that tree of different options mm -hmm. in the best possible way? Yeah. And the, the true goal was kind of to make sure that like the language you would choose as a company would reflect like the user that you're talking to. So a mm. bit of like recommender systems, kind of that kind of vibe. Mm. But yeah, there was no appetite for that. <laughs> so we kind of build an analytics tool that you mm. can sort of, all the requests you would send to us, like everything that came in and what you sent back. And then we would show you some basic stats. And then the goal was kind of that we would build up enough training data that at some point we can scale up the machine yeah. learning. I mean, for me, you know, when I hear, you know, what companies want to have, you know, saying, okay, we want to get started in AI and, you know, what should they do? Almost, you know, in, in, in far too many cases, I, I would argue like 30, 40% of the cases, they say, we want a chatbot <laughs> yes, yeah. for customer support or whatnot. And, and I just, you know, hate that kind of request because it's never, it very rarely adds any value at all. And usually it's just add customer dissatisfaction you know yes. for that experience yeah and i completely agree and maybe now with the conversational ai like yes. the top tier ones maybe that changes but yeah i also uh mm -hmm. like came off it with, with serious doubts but then kind of so after the three months we had to pitch to the investment committee and yeah. then if they agreed if they proceeded which in our case was the case they invested like a tiny amount like 16 16k pounds yeah or we could basically didn't you get salary you know during the first three months or? yes but right back then it was very little so okay. i basically to live off like 1200 pounds mm. um, per month in london which oh, is yeah. uh, tough if your rent is already 900. Yes, yeah. now i think they upped it a little bit but uh back in the day it was it was, it was not much and the kind of when we got the investment we didn't have much runway either so you can kind of give yourself that salary so you passed bit. that uh, test as well so you got exactly. some yes. investment so after three got, months yes that. and then basically the, the second three months is more like the traditional startup accelerator like y combinator and those ones mm. where you're building up towards demo day yeah. and then you want to demo your product or at least the vision and then raise your first round of like external funding and then really start hiring and so on mm. but we both of us got serious doubts couple of weeks before demo day but then yeah as i said before it's also kind of a social experiment so mm. we felt like we're in it now so maybe we should just push to demo day and we both of us had doubts but we didn't we were not honest about it mm. so we didn't tell the other we, we both thought that the other one wanted to continue and we're like okay but that that's the least i can oh. do so then on like a friday i think we both came clean to each other that we had doubts and then we knew okay well this is time to quit so then <laughs> five minutes later we quit the company and that was it and then like the, the startup accelerator is completely cool about that as well like that happens all the time and they like they only want you to push through if you really 100 percent believe it because it's so challenging to yeah. start a company of course so you don't re regret the experience of going there and no, it was amazing. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. And I think, so then afterwards, I came back to Spotify full time. Right. Um, and I was lucky as well, because when the summer internship started, they kind of told other summer interns that there are only two rules. One is that if you want to get hired, you can't have signed a contract for afterwards. Mm. Um, since they, and you, you, you can't be having to go back to university. Basically, if you would did well during the summer internship, they wanted to have the opportunity to give you a full-time contract. Yes. So for a while, I got the, both the offers of Entrepreneur First and Spotify, and I kind of thought that I had to choose. Mm. And then I was a bit depressed about it because both sounded like amazing opportunities. Mm. So then in the end, I was like, maybe I can just ask the recruiter from Spotify, like, mm. can I maybe do both? Mm. And then I made an exception because it was like, yeah, you probably will find that either you're a person that wants to start a company and wants to go that route, 
or you enjoy more kind of a, like a company that is in hyper growth. Mm. And uh, in the end, he was right to give me the opportunity because six months later or like nine months later, I was back full time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, awesome. And, and during the internship that you had, uh, you worked with the Deep Retention Project. How would yes. you describe that? If you recall, it was some oh, years this ago. This is a trip down memory lane. This is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I remember that the goal. So we were both part of like research analytics. So yeah. it was basically trying to analyze why people were churning, why people were using um, Spotify. And we had some, we, we could send them emails to remind them to use it or send them like a, like a discount or something. So it was basically, the idea was like, if we can learn what these points are that they maybe drop off, then maybe mm. we can notch them slightly with some sort of um, discount or something and sort of see if we can get them engaging back with, yeah. uh, with the, the tool. So I, we had a ton of data. It was also the first time that I realized like, how much data that was out there and how challenging it was to like process all of that. Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, we, we trained, I think it was like a recurrent neural network that tried to predict on like a day by day basis if the user would still be active on the, the, the day after. Mm-hmm. And then quite soon after, I also realized that just training these models was very challenging. Getting the data was challenging. So it was more like a, an engineering issue mm-hmm. than maybe like a machine learning issue. As- AI often is, yes, right? Yes, exactly. But this is my first true experience with yeah, that. So yeah. and then I think it was, was super valuable. And it was this kind of wide and deep uh, learning model, if exactly, I don't yes. recall. Yeah, yeah. Right? How, how would you describe that model? What is wide and deep learning? So I think it comes from like the recommender space where often these deep neural networks have a challenge of learning higher level interacted features. Mm-hmm. So if you have a user, like what is the interaction between like their age and the genres they like or mm-hmm. the country they're from. And just by giving the model these raw two features, deep, deep neural networks have a hard time learning that automatically. Yeah. Things like gradient boosted decision trees, like there are other types of algorithms that have a much easier time to learn these kind of combinational type things. Um, so nowadays there are algorithms that can kind of learn these things yeah. automatically. But back with wide and deep, you can basically, you would program as an engineer, okay, what are these cross features? So these features that cross multiple things that could be interesting and then pass that to a separate part of the network kind of to give the model an opportunity to sort of give them that information up front. And then typically they started to perform much better. Yeah, so uh, I saw some quotes. I mean, it's it's trying to find a good mix between both memorizing the data exactly. but also generalizing yes. from it. Right? Well, it's um, interesting though. I completely forgot that it was wide indeed because I'm actually yeah. so now we're working on a modeling machine learning modeling library for recommender systems. Yeah. So one of our tasks on our board is actually to implement the wide indeed oh, model, really? even though that we know that it's not performing as well as like some of the other models, but we want to kind of have it as a, as a benchmark. So it's I mean, uh, it a big thing, I guess. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, Google was one of like the first models they found that yeah. actually was, were because before for tabular data, like the deep neural, neural networks always had a hard time outperforming these yeah. more simpler algorithms, yeah. Yeah. Cool. which is still a, a topic till this day, but uh, is, we're slowly right. getting away from that. But, yeah. <sighs> Um, and tabular data is surprisingly hard for deep learning networks, or that's not really where they shine, at least, right? Exactly. Or, and I'm actually personally on a mission to try to change that. So that's yeah. kind of like the, for the last awesome. year, I've been working on like deep neural networks for tabular data. So this is kind of what I spent most of my thinking cycles on nowadays. And we're, we're making progress, but there's still a long way to go. I add that as a topic. I think that's super interesting. Yes. So awesome. Okay. So you did the internship. Uh, you went to Entrepreneur First, which was yes. in London. Exactly. And, yes. and basically you tried to meet up with some people. 
and you start some kind of startup, you get some funding, and then potentially, you know, you, you see how it goes. And, and you exactly. chose chatbots, which yes. is perhaps not the best thing. Oh, looking back at it, I'm regretting that choice <laughs> a little bit, but it was, it was valuable it was for sure. Yeah. So you would still recommend other people to try it if they get the opportunity to, yes. to apply for it? For me, it was, so since I kind of had this dual interest between like um, entrepreneurship and engineering, mm-hmm. through that experience, I also realized that I had much more, I, I, much more joy out of the engineering part mm-hmm. and like kind of, an artifact of running a startup like that is that you spend a lot of time if you start scaling on, on hiring and especially for like a machine learning type startup, like you, you spend a lot of time getting the data or the app in a place where you can start to do machine learning where it actually makes sense. Because yeah. a lot of these cases, like these companies say they're doing all these advanced machine learning, but there's actually a very simple rule-based system, mm. but they always have to go at some point to change that. Yeah. So for me, if I, like, if I really want to get more knowledgeable in machine learning, like this is not for me the right way to do it. Mm. So then it was much better to go back to Spotify where I can actually focus on these things on a, on a daily basis, mm. which I thought then I could work on machine learning all the time. Even that didn't turn out completely true. Right. And I had to make some detours in order to, to get that to work, but yeah. So what did you start working with at Spotify when you went back there after Entrepreneur yes. first? Yeah, so when I worked with you, it was more on sort of the user, analyzing the user behavior in order to get them more engaged. Um, when I moved back, I was I wanted to work more. Like, I wanted to have more like a product impact. Mm-hmm. I'm using Spotify all day long. It's probably the app that I use now the most. So I was like, I want to work closer What's to the product. <clears throat> Sorry, you have a good uh, or a strong musical interest as well, right? Yes, yeah. I think yeah. I'm uh, so I'm, I'm like listening to music during coding all day long. So I think I'm always in like the top three or five percent or something when the most amount of hours per per year. I always have like a hundred thousand hours or something on a yearly basis, which is a bit (laughs) crazy, but yeah. What kind of music are you interested in? Uh, I think if you would analyze my my, uh, music on Spotify, it's a lot of electronic music that I listen Mm -hmm. to during coding. I have this weird habit where I repeat songs very often if I'm in the zone. Right. And then somehow if I hear that song again, song, I, again, yeah, again, or like a few songs. And then yeah. somehow at some point I, I don't hear it anymore, mm. but then I'm, I'm truly focused. Mm. It's weird. So sometimes I can hear like a song, like in a bar or something, and it takes me back directly to like a coding exercise or sometimes something on university where I just like repeated that song over and over again. She's <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm um, cool. And, uh, do you think, I mean, we had actually a surprising number of guests on this show that have both technical interest and also a very strong musical interest. And, and not the least, Goran here himself and Henrik and, and others that are, which are lucky enough to be talented both in music and tech. I, I want to be, but I'm horrible. The only thing I can do is, is bad karaoke. But uh, I wish I, I could, you know, play an instrument or be more musically talented, so to speak. But do you think... I remember those karaoke days. That was fun. <laughs> yes. um, do you think there is a correlation between people that have you know, interest in music and interest in tech? Are they like a causation between them or what do you think? I think so. I mean, I think coding and tech is often more creative than people maybe think from the outside. Like right. it looks very hard science, but if you start to look into it, like you engineer a system or also on the machine learning side trying to figure out what would work on this algorithm like it's like the creative element is is a lot mm. and i think so i got like a when i was in high school at my own little music studio in the basement and stuff and it just wow. lighted, like you played instrument as well or? i played a bit of piano and i played the drums yeah. so i had like i was mostly producing like electronic music and i think there like there's a lot of um similarities with 
with coding, which is also the reason actually now that I'm not producing music anymore because mm -hmm. it kind of uses, I use my same part of my brain from it that I use for coding. And mm -hmm. now it's like, I'm doing that too much. I, like, I don't get any pressure out of it anymore. Um, but there is like this long tinkering with stuff. Like, how does it sound if I do this? Maybe a little bit of this, like going deep into like the sound designs and the little, like mm -hmm. the, the large amount of virtual instruments that you have, um, which is a bit similar to now, like the large amount of different tools that you can use in order nice. to do machine learning. So I, I think yeah, for me, it's, it's the exact part of my brain that, that liked music mm -hmm. as well as, as, as coding. What do you think about that trend? I mean, Spotify for one is, um, uh, is very strong on using we're promoting not only listeners to music, but also to the creators of music. And there is also a lot of research in, you know, using different AI tools to allow people that may not have the, the talent to play an instrument, but right. still be able to compose yeah. music and produce music in different ways. Do you think that's good or bad things? I mean, as some creators think it, it takes away the... Yeah, I guess it's more like the purists that, that right. have an issue with that. I have no issue with it personally. I think often I heard people at Spotify make the, the comparison between what kind of Instagram did for photography, where everyone is a photographer now with like these different filters. They were kind of looking to sort of create that similar experience for music by making it as easy for people to, to produce like good sounding music. Mm. I think it's a different like it starts, it's different than yeah. just like uh, the purest, but I think there's a, there's a place for it. And especially now with these, when the AI starts to like, become more and more powerful and, yeah. and sort of the, the TikTok of this world, like it, it is, yeah, I think that the youth, like a, uh, I sound very old now, but like when I talk about TikTok and stuff, I do feel old. That's weird. But uh, imagine me speaking about TikTok. That's, that's, yeah. And, but yeah, uh, wouldn't you, think that potentially it's a way to democratize basically music by mm -hmm. giving some, I remember one of the first like AI enabled albums or created albums, Amy or something, I don't recall the name, right? but she used some software to produce, you know, all the orchestra or the instruments and you could basically produce it through right. that and she could add some vocals to it. But in that way, you know, she said, you know, she always wanted, always wanted to play some instruments, but never had the talent to do so. And right. But now suddenly this opened up a new world where she can actually express her, you know, interest in music. Yeah, and that makes, and it becomes things. a different game, right? Like instead of having to have that hard skill of playing an instrument is more like your taste and your intuition sort of guiding the algorithm to something that sounds good to you. Yeah. So now I, I think it's it's super interesting. I think I think we'll get there. Mm. Um, what the implications are for artists, I'm not so sure. I think mm. we've seen that at Spotify, of course, as well with this study and piano music, where it's been you know, people care less about the artists and just like the sounds, and it's easier to make. Mm. So it's uh, th there will there will be some negative elements, I guess, for artists. But they were always having the counter argument at at Spotify mm. for. Instagram and photography that also led to more people getting really interested in sort of like old school photography. It led to more cameras being sold. Mm. So it's also people see it from like a different lens, I guess, literally in this sense. Mm. Um, so that could happen for, for music as well. So I, I don't see, I, I don't get uh, pessimistic by it or I'm not a purist in that front that I think that we shouldn't uh, change these ways because of course it's, it's painful to learn an instrument. It takes you multiple years to get decently good. There's only so many things you can do on a yeah. daily basis. Cool. Well, then you started at Spotify and um, you worked with the Tunigo team, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, can you just describe shortly, you know, what kind of product did you work with or 
the type of yes. So uh, Tunica was the first acquisition that Spotify made, mm-hmm. and basically, um, I, when I was there, I think there were like 150 editors at Spotify. Basically, their full time job was creating and curating playlists, and they had a very prominent um, view on like the or like a spot on the on the homepage. Right. And it was things like Rap Caviar and like a few others as well. And back it when it was it, the, one of the biggest playlists there. It was something yes. about coffee house thing. Coffee, yeah, I or think. So that, yeah, coffee. Your favorite coffee house. Oh, yeah, 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 right. There were a few of those, mm-hmm. and basically they had just like different editors in different countries for different mm-hmm. genres, and depending on like how big the country was, they had more um, editors working for them. And when I started the 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 editor was controlling the whole playlist. So they were also in control of like which songs are in there, yeah. but also which what should be the position of each of these tracks. Right. And like the project that I worked on like for a while for Tunigo, which was kind of like a, a company batteries like Algatorial to get more algorithmic parts in these playlists. So then the idea would be... I think we need be, to repeat that. I think it's interesting, the Algatorial. Yes, and, so and editorial with algorithmic. Yeah, yes. they, they are so very good at inventing semi- words. semi-automatic yes. playlisting. Or, exactly. I mean, they called actually that programming, if I'm not recalled, which actually made me a bit you know, confused to say yes. that programming yeah. is about you know, playlisting. But Exactly. I guess that came from like the radio industry. Yeah. They call it like that. But yeah, I mean, so, they were often people that, um, that had backgrounds in making, like curating radio shows. Yeah. And like the the interview process they have was very interesting, where they just got like a theme, and then they got like twenty minutes, and they had to make a playlist, and they were judged from that. So it was yeah. it's very different um, from how you would be judged when you would be coding. So and, and when you do that, you basically have to choose the songs, as you said, but also the position and the ordering of them. Right? Yes, that's how it started. And then the idea was that they would not create playlists anymore, but they could create pools. So the pool would be larger than the playlist. Let's say the pool would be a few hundred tracks. But for each individual user, maybe only like 25 or 50 would be shown. Mm -hmm. And then there would be an algorithm deciding on a user by user basis, which 25 or 30 that the editor could set, but uh, should be the playlist length, Mm -hmm. should be selected. And then the algorithm would do the optimal ordering, what at least what it would believe would be the optimal ordering. Mm -hmm. So it would add a little bit of personalization to that, but still having highly curated tracks in that pool. Um, the selection per, or personalization of that kind of programmed playlist, yes. call it that, or I mean, some kind of manually programming of a set of 100 tracks or something, yes. and then personalized to like 20 songs. Uh, that was based on the collective filtering vector, right, that they had? Or? Yes, like the word to vac type yes. things. That's how we started. And I think then over time, we wanted to make it more um, dynamic because like one of the implications of that is that like if the user gives direct feedback for that individual playlist, mm. there was no way to act on it. Mm, right. So then we wanted to change that to get more like a, a tighter feedback loop where if you dislike a certain track or like you don't play it, even though it was on the first position, mm. then we wouldn't show that again. But that was kind Perhaps of... Perhaps we need to unpack that a bit more, what, you know, why it's hard to give feedback and... and right. I guess, you know, a simple way is to say you basically have a vector per user saying this is my taste in some exactly. way. And then you have the songs and you simply choose the, the closest one, perhaps with some diversification or yes, something. Exactly. But then if you give feedback saying I don't like this specific song, it's it's hard to include that in the algorithm, so to speak. Or exactly, how, how yeah. would you so in, in this sense, let's say you're playing that your favorite coffee house and there's a yeah. track on there that you don't play on the first position. And people, yeah. like the position is super important. So the higher the track is, the higher the likelihood is that it's being played. Yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that it's a higher quality for this user. Mm. They just click on the first thing that you showed to them. Right. 
So if you then don't play that, like that probably doesn't have enough of an effect on your taste in general because you, like every song is three and a half minutes. Mm. So you have to take quite a few actions for that to sort of go into your, your long-term taste. Mm. Mm. Um, and it could also be that like that track that is on the number one, you've already listened to a few times right. or maybe it doesn't fit that mood what this, pay- this playlist represents for you. So maybe in certain contexts you want to listen to a certain track, but in other contexts you don't. And with that sort of general taste vector, you won't be able to do that. So then kind of you need a sort of tighter feedback loop. But if this user is in this context, in this playlist, this is what it typically listens to. And therefore we sort of boost this track over this other track. Mm-hmm. And this kind of algotorial, I think yes. it's a, a term that is interesting and um I think Spotify coined it. I'm not sure if I, I think they coined it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, did they find a way to make it more, you know, editable in some way? I think right now it's much more editable. Yeah. So I think they're moving to get more and more of the feedback of the user, kind of what TikTok is doing, sort of make things more reactive and trying to act on it directly. Mm-hmm. But it's a hard problem to to tackle. Also, just. You need to log everything correctly and you need to make sure that the algorithm is then taking it into account in a timely fashion. So from an engineering perspective, it's much harder to pull off. Mm. I think it's an ongoing basis, but it's already much more reactive as it was how it was before. Mm. Um, you mentioned TikTok and I'm, I'm eager. Do you know the details about how that algorithm works? I heard some stories about that, but I'm not yeah, really... I, I've only basing it on the, the public research that I've seen, like the papers yeah. that they published. Mm. Um, I think... It's similar in a way from what Spotify is doing in the sense that maybe Spotify's algorithms were not top-notch, but the data set that they had was so high quality that even relatively simple algorithms were performing amazingly well. Mm. And I think that's true in a way for TikTok as well because every video is only 10 or 20 seconds. Mm. So if you think about it, like if you compare Spotify to Netflix where like a Mm. movie or like a series is like, Tens of hours. Yeah. A movie is one and a half hours. So the yeah. amount of actions that you can sort of, the amount of feedback that you can give to the algorithm is relatively limited. Spotify can already do much more because every track is three and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. But if you cut that down even more, yeah. then you get so much data that yeah. it's also easier to act on. So there's but, there's wasn't much, tic, but wasn't TikTok a more content-based type of algorithm rather than clarity filtering? I think so. I think they've done a lot to make it more like uh, enable more organic growth, that it's not only like the top influencer taking away everything, but they want to ensure that like a small creator could still make it all the way to the top. So I think they ensure, but I'm not sure if that's learned or is it more like a rule-based system that that has that type of diversity. Perhaps we should unpack, you know, what, uh, I guess these are the two main types of recommender systems you can build, like clarity filtering versus content-based. How would you describe these two for people that haven't heard these kind of terms, clarity filtering versus Yes, clarity filtering is just kind of trying to, to look at users that are similar in your behavior and then seeing what they like and then giving that to you. Um, so if our taste 80% match, but we have on top of that some different tracks that we listen to, then we can recommend these tracks that we haven't played to each other in order to see if we like that. Yeah. Um, Content-based is, is different where you either try to um, describe the content and try to manually put it in different buckets. Mm. I remember when we were at Spotify, I think it was like Pandora had this whole genomics type thing where mm. they had this different, they're trying to break it down. Genomics of music. And exactly. Yeah. Is. So um, like genome or a lot of data about each yes, song and, exactly. and everything. And then trying to see what you, based on what you liked, what are the closest in content to mm. that? And that can be metadata around the song, yes, not necessarily exactly. the actual 
content. It could also it. be the audio if you want yeah. to push it really far. It's like what kind of tracks sound like each other mm. um, in, in music that is relatively hard to do. Mm. You need to have a pretty good understanding of the track in order to be able to do that. Mm. Um, but there are definitely ways to uh, to do that. And I guess it's also more of like news type things where you can look at like the word counts and like the topics and then you can sort of, based on this topic, things in another tip like you can recommend as well. But for, for music, it's typically a little bit harder. Awesome. And then you worked with playlisting there at, uh, at Tunigo. What was the, was it still called Tunigo at that time? Or was well, it they changed to like programming platform. Yeah, right. So when I, uh, uh, there were like four teams when I was in there and then often like that, these company bets. So they had like a bunch of teams working on that together. Mm. So for that project, we worked with a bunch of teams that were based in Boston. Mm. And then for the last, and then like, my work so the algorithm part was pretty simplistic and we're basically just reusing what spotify already had so they were like infrastructure teams that were basically publishing these vectors for the whole company and we yeah. were using that but we didn't have enough resources to actually make meaningful improvements to these machine learning algorithms as a team yeah. because kind of the, the 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 strategy that they use at each team is a squad should be super autonomous yeah. which means that each squad only has like one or two machine learning engineers tops and for other type like front end or back end, typically that is enough to make meaningful improvements. Yeah. For machine learning, it's typically not enough, especially yeah. since machine learning was still pretty new at Spotify. Yeah. So we, we struggled a bit with that. So then in order to get more exposure to machine learning, I actually started working more on like the infrastructure side. So I embedded with a team in, in Boston and New York for a while. And then I built this little prototype that would make it easier to run like an MLOps type framework to make it easier to transform your data, train a model and evaluate it all in like a same pipeline, mm. all in like Python. So basically targeted to machine learning engineers and in the tools that they're working with. Because mm. typically as part of it, for instance, you have data engineers, they write their things in Scala. Yeah. And you have machine learning engineers that typically write their things in Python in other frameworks. And it doesn't always match. So the only people that could really get things done were machine learning engineers that worked there for a while, had enough understanding yeah. of the data pre-processing or like all the different systems. Yeah. But for new joiners, it was typically quite hard. So I think it, you, you go through this very quickly. So it can be, I think, hard for yes. listeners to understand. Yeah, slow me down part. wherever you think <laughs> it would be more explanation needed. But just to, to reiterate a bit more here, I mean, for one, you will work with a programming platform team, but that's not really about coding. It's about the exactly. playlisting part right but then uh, also i think you mentioned a very important point which is that if you have a squad that have some you know responsibility and uh, ownership of let's say playlisting then and you just have one or two ml engineers uh, working there it can be really hard for them to contribute to some like core machine learning algorithm system yes. right Especially in the beginning of a project, you're still trying to get the data in the right shape. You're trying to make meaningful improvements, but then you're not training your own models as a team, but you're using someone else's models. And then mm. you're kind of trying to influence that, which can be challenging. Mm. And typically you just don't have enough time to really prioritize working on your own models and, and pulling all that off. Mm. And I think what I identified and many in the company identified as the key issue was just like it was too painful to do this all by yourself there was no good infrastructure to do this so how do you build a team that can really work on improving like ml models in a good way what right. is i think spotify's take on it is that they don't want to have centralized modeling teams but they want to make this as close to like the domain experts which yeah. i think is it's a good argument but that only work if there is enough infrastructure in place to make it possible 
nice. to make meaningful improvements on this model with only one or two people. Mm-hmm. And this works very well with like standardized infrastructure for like backend programming, so the things that are running on the server, for like data engineering, for front end. So they had all these frameworks in place that kind of standardized how things were done mm-hmm. for a particular like type of engineering. Mm-hmm. And then they were able to sort of make meaningful improvements with only one or two people. Mm. But for machine learning, for a long time, we were definitely not there. So I spent a bunch of time trying to design tooling that would enable that so that mm. it would be possible for teams to do way more things on their own and be autonomous and train their own models and make their own decisions around how to evaluate these models, how to mm. pre-process the, the data for it, and, and so on. We actually had one... Um a uh, person that uh, came come from the same country as you from Netherlands here uh, John Bosch I'm not sure if you know him never heard of him it sounds like a dutch name though <laughs> yeah so he's a professor in software engineering from Chalmers okay but he focuses on ai uh, a lot and he coined how sure if he coined it probably not but he he speaks and actually do research in what he calls ai engineering mm-hmm. and he tries to argue or try to discuss and find you know what are the difference, differences between traditional software engineering like back end front end engineering right. etc or data engineering compared to ai engineering and then one of the conclusions basically or conclusions um anyway one of the findings uh, i guess is that ai engineering has a lot of challenges that traditional software engineering does not have Mm-hmm. And we would be fun to hear what you think about the, what are the main differences between like traditional if you if you build a mobile app or website or like a database based backend system or or an API or whatever uh, compared to like a heavily uh, machine learning model based kind of system like a recommender system. Um, one thing I, I can start to just mm-hmm. give some points and please you know let me know what you think about that, but. One part, at least, is that in traditional software engineering, everything is hard coded. Basically, you have to write, you know, the code yourself from, you know, not from scratch, but you you can you have to at least use the existing libraries and code out there and, and write everything right. manually. And, and one way to define AI would be to say that you know AI, or at least machine learning, is about really trying to automate a small part of that process to instead use data to automatically right. infer the rules. Of that, so in that way you can start to build recommender system or image classifiers or whatnot. So, but that also means that you have a new dependency that you've never seen before, which is data. And uh, you never know, uh, I would argue, if something will work until you tried it for your use case on that data that you do have, which is very different from traditional software engineering, where you at least know this is something I can imagine the rules to be, yes. and it's a bit easier potentially to plan or foresee if something will work or not. Would you agree with that? That's- 100%. I think yeah. uh, sort of the, the experimental part of it is, is a big factor in this, where you just have to try it out. And even mm. if you've sort of seen something work and something that is very similar, mm. you can never be 100% confident that if you just change that system to use your data instead, yeah. that you would have the same amount of success. You need to understand the data pretty well. You need to understand like the algorithmic choices that you have to make. So it's, mm. it's much more a trial and error than maybe normal engineering is. Yeah. Another claim potentially would be that <clears throat> the, the tooling around like traditional software engineering is, is rather mature. Yeah. Um, we have rather good tools when it comes to testing or when it comes to just the the development environment that you do mm-hmm. have or CICDs and, and DevOps potentially as well. Right. 
But potentially for AI, the tooling is much more immature. Would you agree with that as well? 100%. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, uh, it's all been developed in the last few years. Yeah. And especially for like tabular data recommender systems, like there's not much out there that you can just use and it will do everything that you need to do. Mm. There's a lot of like custom engineering that you need to do on top of it mm. in order to get like an end-to-end system in place because it's typically pretty complex. And it's the exact problem that we're trying to solve it with NVIDIA is, Merlin right. where we're trying, right. we're incentivized in a way to to do this because we, we don't have skin in the game in that sense that we don't have our own competing service. We don't have any recommender systems on our own. We just are interested in sort of bringing the space forward and making sure that mm. companies can can build these things on their own with their own data. I mean, I was thinking that. I mean, you are exactly doing that right now, you know, trying to improve the tooling around the recommender systems at NVIDIA right now. Right. But before we go there as well, uh, so you moved to this uh, Boston team as well, and you worked a bit closer to the infrastructure part of yes. the system, right? What was that more specifically? Yeah, so it was, was a team that would do more sort of general machine learning on mm -hmm. like promotions. Mm -hmm. But my promotions uh, like uh, ads or stuff or what, yeah exactly I think this was like a few of like emails for like yeah. promoting concerts and we had right. a few of those projects that were kind of like one offs and we would use like different types of models and I joined more as like a machine learning engineer focusing on sort of building this tooling because mm -hmm. I was very frustrated at that point that I wasn't working as I wanted to and I couldn't work as 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 much on the machine learning side mm -hmm. as I as I wanted to. So I, I worked in this team and I built this little prototype. Um, so we, we had this um, Python library called Luigi that was yes. basically doing sort of data engineering pipelines. So I, I coined this tool Mario that was kind of a, like Mario. a Python type um, framework built on top of like Kubeflow and some of the tools that just were open sourced by, by Google that they were using internally to mm. have these end-to-end -end systems that you take in a bunch of data and it was all kind of standardized what was happening in that pipeline. So it was one, you had different components so you could extend it with your own components as well. So you had data coming in, then it would generate all the statistics. So you had like a visualization where you could see the distributions of the different features. Um, to kind of see what you could do with it. Mm. Then it would infer the schema, then it would train a model on it, and then it would evaluate Could, the model. But you, I guess we're speaking about Mario now and not Kubeflow directly. So, right? so yeah, so, okay, I'll go a bit more in deep like what Mario was doing. But mm. so they had, so they had this thing called TFX, which is basically coming out of Google where yes. they had all these components. And at the time, they, and that was TensorFlow Extended, exactly. right? Exactly, TensorFlow so Extended. It's, it's more like a framework around the TensorFlow yes. network to exactly. have the additional tooling. Exactly, and primarily targeted for like tabular data, which is kind of what recommender systems yeah. all is. You have certain types of properties of users and of items, yeah. so they're all different columns. You can kind of see it as one big Excel sheet of different properties that you have. You're trying to learn from that what the... the mm -hmm the chances that a certain user likes a certain item kind of, right. and you can describe that item and user with, with different properties. Um, so this system seemed very promising, but when it started, they just wrote a paper. So they described the system, but they didn't open source it. You mean Kubeflow now? Uh, so TFX. TFX. So okay. like TFX was these components and then Kubeflow was more like how you would run, how you would execute these things yes. on Kubernetes. So like, yeah, it's, it gets technical, but like how these components are being run in the cloud kind of. So we're mm -hmm. two different systems. And they were both very promising, but they like there was not one tool that can uh, use both of them at the same time. So make use of DTFX components, but then execute them using Kubeflow. Because mm -hmm. Kubeflow then allowed you to have like a little UI. So you had like a 
user interface you get like a website where you can go to mm -hmm. you can see like a visualization of your end-to-end -end pipeline with like the different outputs mm -hmm. and you could see like kind of the, 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 like all the results of your model and that was open source as well kubeflow and the, yes kubeflow and, and tvx were, were yeah. both open source but barely any documentation yeah. and um they, they didn't work together what do you think about kubeflow pipelines you know yeah, that was the project yeah so it was kubeflow oh, pipelines that was, that was what you worked with okay yeah exactly what do you think about that i i have mixed feelings i must say about the kubeflow pipelines part so um it's basically you can run a pipeline of these different steps and yeah. then each step runs on kubernetes in like yes. a docker container but it made it very challenging to like i have some code on my computer that i want to run mm -hmm. how do i get it there because there was no way of like automating that like this code should go in this component and then you should run it kind of you all had to do like manual steps where right. you first build a Docker image, then you like publish it, mm -hmm. then you change your pipeline to say, okay, this is the Docker image that I want to use, and it was super manual. And a lot of was it YAML file or XML file? Exactly, yeah. YAML files, right? YAML, yeah. So like a lot of YAML. Um, that was the tool that I built, got rid of that kind of. So we would oh, really? build the Docker images automatically for you, mm -hmm. and would basically do all the YAML generation on the back end. So all you had to work with is just like a Python pipeline where mm -hmm. it just does it all for you. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, and then kind of that grew into, so I did this little prototype, I demoed it to some people, mm. and then I was um, like the ML, there was like an ML platform team mm. as an infrastructure team that was focusing on making sure that there would be better infrastructure of the whole for the whole company that were doing um, sort of end-to-end -end pipelines for machine learning. Mm. So, so they, they saw it and then kind of, I, I worked with them for like a year and a half to sort of build this out towards becoming like like a core element of like Spotify's like managed um, machine learning infrastructure. And it might still be running today, but no. uh, no, no, that's awesome. I, I'd like to just linger a bit longer on you know yes. how do you do configuration configuration management properly? And you know I've been tearing my hair off a number of times when trying to to configure different Kubernetes cluster and. You know, twenty different YAML files that you have to treat, mm -hmm. try to see some kind of, you know, this has to have the same that name there and, and this one in the other place, and the, even at some point, you know, you can do if you use like, um, uh, like scolding. No, not scolding. Uh, the ah, what's the the name for the thing that you can use to? Uh, ah, I forgot. Anyway. You can have these kind of tools to uh, to operate and and replace parts of old YAML files. So we basically oh, have JSON net or something. I give a few. No, notes, no, right? no. It's uh, ah, I don't. Anyway, you can basically put programming operations right. inside yeah. the YAML files. So you right. say replace, and you have yes. some kind of uh, like identifier, and and they basically try to in a YAML syntax do programming. And yeah. I think that's so completely wrong, to be frank. And well, if you do programming, you shouldn't use YAML. I agree. And, and I think also, even without doing programming, still having all these kind of YAML files without the possibility to, to reduce them, mm -hmm. which normal programming languages can do much better, requires you to have so much boilerplate. So the whole like configuration management becomes super complicated. Right. Do, what do you think about it? I, mean, why I completely do I hate YAML. So like yeah. for me, it needs to be all like a programming language. So we do everything in Python. Yeah. Um, but like provisioning these clusters is super painful. So the way Spotify sold is that like that machine learning infrastructure team mm. deployed multiple clusters and then the entire company was using those. Mm. So they kind of like automated that all for you, mm. um, which makes life much easier. 
And then we had that tool that kind of just built the Docker images for you, compiled it all down to like the YAML representation of the whole pipeline, right. and then uses Qflow pipelines to execute it. So then as a user, you don't have to worry about any YAML at all. And it's just all Python, which is kind of the language anyways that yeah. um, comp like uh, engineers or machine learning engineers are most familiar with. Sounds like a dream, I think. Cool. Is that, started, open, is that no. open sourced yet? No, no. Okay. Um, I, I it's it's not. <laughs> if I would build it again, I would build it differently. Let's put it at that. Okay. But um, it, it worked reasonably well. But what I realized is that it was heavily targeted towards machine learning engineers, mm. and then for machine learning researchers, it was super painful to use because they often mm. don't have knowledge about Docker, don't have knowledge about right. Kubernetes, and they don't mm. just want to think about it. And like they're they don't really care about a production pipeline either. They basically, what they care about is, okay, I have this data, I have this model, this is how I want to evaluate it, mm. run it for me in a good way, and kind of almost like a Rubik's Cube with like three different dimensions. They want to change the data set, they want mm. to change the hyperparameters, or they want to change like the model architecture. And that's all you need to give them. Kind of. And this tool didn't really mm. allow that. I mean, just, I think this is such an interesting topic with thinking, you know, traditional software engineering, nice, easy tooling. Mm. You basically said before that, you could potentially do some like front-end engineering with just this one or two person in a in a squad, mm -hmm. because in some way it, it still works. You, you have you know more, more maturity, I guess, simply right. so that works. But it doesn't really work for machine learning. And what do you think about the future? If you think about ahead, I mean, I, I mean, I can imagine so many companies that have gone through this problem mm -hmm. specifically and. They have one or two data scientists or machine learning engineer that may be good at the theory or, or using notebooks, but not, don't really know the tooling around building proper systems. Do you think there will come a place where machine learning will be as easy to work with as like front-end engineering? So you can really have like a single machine learning engineer in a team and it still works as good as it does for traditional software engineering. Yes, I, I do think so. Yeah. But... Um, so like if we go back to like that system that we had at Spotify, I initially I thought all it will take is just giving one machine learning engineer in Python the opportunity to change all parts. So they want they should have a way to change the data, join in different sources, transform it slightly different, add some new feature sources, all of that. Mm -hmm. They should have a way to change the model and they should have a way to like evaluate it slightly differently. Right. And that's kind of all they need. Yeah. Then I realized when I build a system that could do exactly that. Um, which often the case, then the next bottleneck starts to show up, right? Yes. It's like your your system is only as good as your weakest link, of course. Mm. And in that system, it became the runtime. So um, the computation time was just way too slow. So all these individual steps were using um, data flow under the hood, which mm. is this, this, this technology from Google. Yeah. It's basically just MapReduce type jobs that run sort of Similar to Spark and Flink, I guess, but exactly, it's the managed yeah. service in Google Cloud. Yeah. So basically, as an engineer, you have a way to program in a certain way that you can easily distribute that over multiple different computers, different mm -hmm. services. And this tool helps you kind of say, okay, I want to run this program on 100 different nodes, and it will just provision all that for you, mm -hmm. run the program, and then remove all the, all the nodes afterwards. Yeah. But it was all written in Python, so it was relatively slow. So then I finally, like had a system where as an engineer myself, it wasn't the easiest to use system, but I was at an advantage, of course, because I built large parts of it. So I was at least <laughs> able to use it. So I could transform the day, I could change the model and do the evaluation. But then the problem was that the whole end-to-end -end pipeline 
took like 24 hours to run mm. on like a reasonably sized data set at Spotify. So let's say a few hundred million rows. Mm. That is very challenging because that means that you can't even like do it on a single workday and even on two workdays, like mm. it's tricky. So then what ended up happening is that the data we would like upfront, we would say, okay, these are the features that we want to experiment with. We would run it once and we would not touch it anymore. So then this sort of pipeline that you have of transformations, model training and evaluation, mm kind of only focus on the last two, which you know that you only get like a certain amount of like performance, of course, because you're ignoring like a large part. We can actually make meaningful differences. Mm -hmm. And even that large, last part took maybe seven, eight hours for training, three, four hours for evaluation. So even that didn't fit in like a single workday. Mm -hmm. So then it's like, okay, now I have an environment where I can change everything, but I just I have to wait so long. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, okay, it's actually a computational problem. Mm -hmm. And then when I, I was at KDD, one of like the, the large conferences, and right. that was for the first time I got demoed like NVIDIA Rapids, yeah. which is essentially Rapids, sort of yeah. a library. So in if you do any data processing in Python, um, you only do that in small scale. You have this library called NumPy, and you have this uh, for like arrays, and you have this library called Pandas, which is yeah. more for like kind of Excel type things. But all the net memory, all the data needs to fit in memory, so you can only do it for large scales. But then it's it's reasonably fast, but you can only work maybe like 100,000 rows or something. Mm. And then NVIDIA showed this tool where they implement the exact same APIs of these two tools, but they all ran it on the GPU. And it could actually scale to much larger data sets because over the last few years, the amount of memory that in these GPUs like, grew a lot. Yeah. So that for the first time, like I built then a tool at Spotify that replaced some of like the tools that were using the MapReduce to move it to the GPU. And then I ended up with a pipeline where um, the end-to-end -end pipeline maybe only took like five minutes for something small, and maybe like 30 minutes for something big. So then finally we were able to like multiple iterations on a single day, which is kind of the exact, like I guess around the time that you were there, it had a similar thing where it started with like MapReduce and Hadoop yeah. and ended up being BigQuery, where it was yes. also that 10x speed up. And then all the data scientists- Take hundred or thousand times exactly. speed up. Yeah. And that made all the difference for that. Yeah. So I was kind of, okay, I think in order to push it forward, it's not only an API problem, but it's also just a runtime issue. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah uh, awesome and let's move into nvidia i think as well uh, any last like highlights from spotify times otherwise that you'd like to mention before we move on to I had, I had a great experience there like yeah. uh especially like, like that first couple of months when you hired me I really felt like a kid in a candy store and like there was like the, the office was nice and like there were so many parties and it felt like a very vibrant place yeah um, it changed a little bit, of course, with COVID when everything was remote and then like the company kept on growing as well. Yeah. Um, but overall, I had like a great experience there. But I, at some point, I just realized that the things I was more interested in and in sort of creating um, infrastructure that was more like generic. Mm. And there were not that many opportunities at Spotify anymore because Spotify a couple of years ago made the call, okay, we're, we're like everything low level, we're not going to do ourselves. We're just going to use Google Cloud. Yeah. And that means that for me, building those tools, there was not that much appetite for because there was always something at Google Cloud that could do that. Yeah. I was never so happy with like the solution. I would like to change it, but yeah. it's hard to do from the outside, of course. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the reasons that I, that I made to jump to NVIDIA, where it's sense. all of, yeah. about the lower level infrastructure. Yeah. Cool. And then you got into NVIDIA. And, and what did attract you to NVIDIA? Was it specifically this, that you could actually work with more or should we call it infrastructure or low-level functionality? Yes, and also just like a 
change of kind of variables that you can work with. Like at Spotify, you can kind of look at it as like unlimited amount of data, but mm. the compute is relatively limited. Like mm. if you're a single engineer and you want to learn more about machine learning, you want to scale up your models and you want to use like GPUs or like specialized hardware to do so, mm. The price of these things are super expensive on yeah. Google Cloud, which basically means that if you really want to get like a tight feedback loop or, okay, I change one parameter, see what it does, you really have to spend like millions and millions of dollars on Google Cloud, which I would never get the approval for. And that, like, that makes sense because business-wise, you shouldn't give me that flexibility. <laughs> but NVIDIA is different, of course, because there we, we built the engineering, there we built the hardware. So I basically now have unlimited amount of compute. I have like a big machine. with. Can you run some models for me as well? Sure, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll run faster than like the dummy uh, version of the GGX, I think. Um, but like the, the sort of the, the sad part is that I don't have unlimited data anymore. I have to work yeah. with public data, so that yeah, makes it sort of the trade off. Right? Exactly, it's yeah. it's a weird trade off. And like we, we, like part of the fun, of course, as well as like building recommender systems that actually are out in the wild and sort of you can interact with and have impact on people. Mm. Right now, we're much further apart from it, so we know that companies are using our tooling to build recommender systems. Mm. But we don't really know how, like yeah. they are telling us. But like, can you describe that as potentially? It's Spotify was more B 2 C. I mean, you built right. the product for an end user in some case, and, and you could measure the impact mm -hmm. it had or user experience in some way. But now you're more building code or, or products for other companies, more or less. It's more right. B2B. Would that be a fair description? Yes, although there, there are a fair amount of infrastructure teams at Spotify as well, yeah, right. um, and mm. which I was working at like mm. for the last like one and a half, two years. Mm. But then you still had the opportunity. So like all code at Spotify is hosted on like a private GitHub. And everything is kind of open to when you work there, which means that like you know exactly how each team is using your tool. Mm. And you can use that as kind of like, right. oh, they're using it wrong here, or actually their use case is slightly different, so you can learn from it. Then you can yeah. sort of improve your tooling. That is much harder now, because yeah. now I, I don't have a search bar where I can just type in, mm. give me everyone that's using my tool, and mm. then let me learn from that, mm. which makes it more challenging. How do you interact? I guess we should wait with that. So I add that as a question. You know, yes. how do you interact with the users of Merlin, etc.? But um, perhaps we should first move into that because you got started working with Merlin directly, right? Yes. Or yeah, I got hired in, in the Merlin team in May last year, so I've only yeah. almost been there for a year now. And what is NVIDIA Merlin? So it's basically an open source framework for end-to-end -end recommender systems. So the idea is that we want to utilize GPUs mm. and build tooling for companies that they can train their own models and their own data for recommender type problems. And when I joined, there was only one team, kind of the data or the one product, the transformation, and now we're expanding it. So we're more and more moving to sort of having tools for all the different parts of, of a, like an end-to-end -end recommender systems project, mm -hmm. so to say. And what are the different components basically that you are working yeah, with? Yeah, so we have, so if you have like the inner machine learning loop, as I would call it, so mm -hmm. basically data transformation, a single model training, and then the way you evaluate that model, right. which is kind of, we already had the transformations. I've been working from the start on like Transformers, Rack and Merlin models. So building machine learning modeling libraries. We have a little bit of evaluation metrics and stuff in there, but there's much more we can do. And then more and more, we're also kind of working on kind of the, the outer loop, I would say of machine learning tooling, where it's, also, it's kind of putting it in production. Mm -hmm. So if you think about an end-to-end -end recommender systems problem, we, we typically like to frame it here in VDAD like in four different parts. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so there is like the retrieval, there's the ordering, there's the ranking, and mm-hmm. then there is the oh, sorry, sorry, there's the retrieval, then there's some sort of filtering, then there's right. the ranking, and then there's like the ordering. And so there is multi- what is the f- difference between ranking and, and ordering? So typically, if um, let, let's say for instance that you have a single model that makes a prediction, mm-hmm. but you're a Spotify and you also want to, which is kind of a score, like how much does this user like this item? Yeah. But we also want to ensure like artist fairness and stuff like that. So there's like different constraints. Post processing, exactly. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So ordering is the kind of like business, yeah, thing. business logic. And there's yes. like a filtering there as well. Like let's say you filter, you you re- you want to recommend a track to a user in a country where that track is not part of Spotify, which happens mm-hmm. because there's like a very complicated system with record labels and stuff. So there's often business logic that you need to apply after right. you get the results of the machine learning model. So how would you describe the different parts? So retrieval is basically given a huge set of um, songs or whatever. Mm-hmm. You, you get some kind of query into it or something yes. that you feed in. And then the retrieval part is simply collecting a big set of candidates. Or how would you describe the retrieval part? Yeah, so um, if we would go to the ranking, typically it would be a user with all the features, an item and all the features, and you would get back a score. Like how much does this user like this item following this algorithm? But if you have millions of users and you have millions of items, you can't just just run that algorithm for all possible combinations. That would just be computational, like that would never work. So there are these special type models, which is like this, like where you can kind of embed both the users and the items in a vector space where kind of how much a user likes an item. You can say what they are called. I think it's important to know. Yeah, so you have like matrix factorization, and then you have a sort of more generalized version of that, which is called like a two-tower, which is basically you have not... So matrix factorization, you have a user ID, you have an item ID, yeah. and you learn somehow like to predict what the score will be based on data that you observe. Two-tower, but I thought factorization machines is also a part of it, or is that different yes. from this? Or? It's... Um, Fact, yeah, it's like a special type of, of yeah. models, which is, uh, yeah, we can talk about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the two-tower uh, two thing? I guess uh, matrix factorization is, is rather well-known. Yes. Two-tower is basically the generalization of that in the deep learning fashion, where you don't only have a user ID and an, I- and an item ID, but you also have user features and item features. Ah. So the user features are all going to one deep neural network that outputs a vector similarly for the item ones so the user now so you get two vectors in the end which is exactly what you would get for a matrix factorization and then everything just follows through so it's just essentially you have this extra element where you, you add more features towards it and you use a deep neural network to learn that representation so to, to give it a concrete example then you could have like songs on spotify you have the user ids you have the yes. item ids which is already the songs exactly. yeah what but yeah. And then you can have features like, I guess, the genre of the song or something. Exactly. Genre of the Age song, of the when user. it was released, maybe the artist. Um, and then on the user side, you might have like demographics and like a few other things to that describe potentially the behavior of this user. Right. It sounds very similar to factorization machines in my view, but okay. What's the difference then to factorization machines? Um, it's it's similar, um, but the factorization machine is more like you learn higher level feature interaction. So it's a different type, yeah, a certain yeah. type of like a model architecture, yeah. where that you typically can also use for ranking or retrieval, right? And then for ranking, since 
you, you don't have to put any constraints on it, kind of. You can just use whatever architecture you want. Mm. But then a user in a, in a two-tower retrieval setting, mm. you can't learn interactions between a user and the item because then you won't be able to do the retrieval. Yeah. So it's kind of you have to put a constraint on it, which typically leads to the fact that these models are not performing as well as they could be. Yeah. But the big plus is that you can very efficiently then say, okay, this is my user ID. Give me the the most the, the closest or like the, the tracks that are like the highest probability that this user would like it. Mm -hmm. So now if you have like a system, um, let's say let, let's take a Spotify one. We have Discover Weekly where like we like the, the whole pool of tracks that we take into account is in the millions. Mm -hmm. Then and then we want to end up with like a playlist of like twenty five. So then we put it to the retrieval. Then we like filter it down to maybe a few hundred tracks or a mm -hmm. few thousand. And then we do have a score for like, okay, what does the model right. think of all these combinations? So we could already order them, mm. but typically you don't do that because you can actually then give it to a ranking model that is better at that ordering mm. and then kind of gives you better results kind of. So you can make your, make it easier for yourself to only have one model that does all the predictions, but typically to get the best performance, there are actually multiple models involved, which so, makes like deploying and building these recommender systems super complex because yeah. you don't have to worry about one model, but there are multiple models you need to care about. So can you give an example, I guess, retrieval-wise, uh, we can use you know standard matrix factorization techniques or two-tower or mm -hmm. factorization machines and you get some score yes. out, but you can potentially then use that to just retrieve the top one, but then yes. you can add some kind of additional ranking. What is that additional ranking? How, how, can you give an example of a model? Yeah, so typically, like, if we, if we go for the retrieval, like, a few more seconds, then, like, we could then export all the user vectors and all the item vectors. Mm -hmm. We can load that in an index, an approximate nearest neighbor index, and that mm -hmm. allows us to do that super fast retrieval. So then we get a point in this vector space. So each element in this uh, vector space has a distance to each other, and we can build a certain index that makes that retrieval super fast. So it's not 100% correct, mm -hmm. but with like high likelihood, it gives you, if you have a point that could be a user or item, Give me back the things that are the closest to it. And that's still in the retrieval phase. Exactly, yes. And it's just similar to the Spotify Annoy kind Exa of library, exactly. right? Yes. So it's an approximate yeah. nearest neighbor. It really, really quickly finds something in a huge high dimensional space or hundreds of millions of users yes. or whatnot. But it may be wrong. It, it's yes. some kind of approximation potentially. Okay, right. so that, Which is another reason why you want to add that ranking stage to make sure that, that there's nothing in there that is wrong mm. but then if you filter down let's say you start with a million items mm. you filter it down to like a few hundreds mm. then all of a sudden it's fine to give that to a ranking model and give like the user features and the item features like mm. the combinations of all of those get a thousand uh, let's say we have filtered down to a thousand get a mm. thousand scores back mm. and then we can use that to order it and then we have a higher likelihood we get like a like the better ranking is that another like neural network or something or how typically yeah um, so, and they're like special type of model. And typically there you could also use a vectorization machine. You can use, um, there are these models that you can do wide and deep that we started this conversation with. There mm -hmm. are like models like DLRM and deep and cross network. So mm -hmm. DLRM comes from Facebook, which is a model that automatically learns these important feature crosses mm -hmm. to learn these higher level feature interactions. Deep and cross network is like a similar type network that does it in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. So those are making your life easier as a machine learning engineer because there's less things you need to worry about because the model learns more things by itself. Kind of. So now we're down to uh, having a set of tabular data, the features yes. for each user and item, and then yes. you want to make some kind of prediction on on the... To what? I mean, what is really the, the ground truth when, when you train this model from the ranking purpose? 
So typically you could even train them on the both the same task. So um, like you can either use explicit signals. So if you ask your users, okay, rate all the items that you interacted with from a score Mm -hmm. of one to five, then you can use that as a signal. But that's typically not what's happening because users typically are not spending a lot of time to give you explicit feedback. So just to give an example, explicit could be that you on Netflix, for example, gives yes. it uh, like a, th- is it thumbs up they have there? Or, or some, st- it's a five star thing, right? That they they start in five star. I'm not sure if they still have it. Maybe now it's, I think they just introduced like thumbs up and double uh, thumbs up. So uh, now okay. I think they have like two different parts. But yeah. I, for a while it was like between zero and five. Yeah, but it, it requires some kind of manual action from the user to, to obtain this right. kind of explicit, uh, explicit ratings. But then you have implicit ratings, right? Yes which is basically the things that a user interacts with, which yeah. you can kind of get for free as you're a platform. So it's simply if the user list or viewed that movie at all, so it's one or zero more or less, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. So, and then typically you only have positive interactions. You don't have explicit negative. So then there is like a lot of, that's what we're working on now. There are different strategies you can take to guess what would be good negatives. Mm. And that actually makes a huge impact how all these models are learning. Mm. Um, and like you make a lot of like computational trade-offs kind of. Yeah. Cool. I see the time is flying away here and, and <laughs> we really want to get into, you know, the, the tabular kind of data with new networks, et cetera, and so many other things. So I'm trying to speed it up a bit here. Yes. Um, okay. So Merlin then has a number of components. It has the different parts, retrieval, filtering, ranking, and ordering in the end. Yes. And, and the ordering in then is, is more on the post-processing, trying to add some business logic to exactly. it. Exactly. So maybe Is some extra di- constraint, diversity, diversity, stuff like that. Like right. it, it depends on from um, like use case to use case. Yeah. But yeah, it could be artist diversity. It could be item diversity that you want, like a certain female representation. Like there is all kinds of stuff that you can do there in order to maintain like good hygiene of the system yeah. kind of. Basically add bias, I guess. It's exactly. Some, yes. some kind of prior that you want yes. to add. <laughs> What do you think uh, if we just move to Spotify and the word to Vec uh, approach that they have chosen after a lot of you know iteration experimentation? Right. They came up with word to Vec, uh, which basically not even used the user item interactions anymore. So it's just the songs in the playlist, right? right? And then predicting is this song from the same playlist or not, more or less. Right. Um, it, what do you think about that? It seemed to work well for Spotify. Mm-hmm. Do you? Do you have any thoughts about if is it a, this is a good retriever or not? At Spotify, it was a really hard one to beat. Yeah. Um, but um, like, it's tricky as well if you start to add more machine learning to your platform because mm-hmm. that changes dynamics as well. Like pr- back in the days, um, most of the people, how they found music was organic and a lot of people were creating playlists. Mm-hmm. But then when they had a more machine learning, more and more people found their tracks through machine learning, which also meant that less people were making playlists. Mm-hmm. So then building up your training data becomes a little bit trickier as well. So yeah. over time, depending on like where you push your users towards, maybe the strategy becomes less good. But it's still a very good way um, to do candidate retrieval. But typically in like these large-scale systems, you can even have multiple systems that do candidate retrieval. So like if we go from a million tracks to like a thousand, doesn't necessarily mean that those thousands can all come from the same system. You could actually query multiple models and it could even be some rule-based things where these artists, we want to give extra exposure. Mm -hmm. So it could be multiple sources leading to that filter down of a thousand Mm -hmm. and then you pass it on to the rest part of your your pipeline. So if you were to give a recommendation, pun intended, 
to a startup that want to build their own recommender system. Right. Of course, they should Merlin. <laughs> yes, uh, no question about that. <laughs> but then they have to make a choice in the retriever. Uh, let's say they want to sell books or something. And right. they have uh, not a super huge amount of data, but at least, I don't know, tens of thousands of users and right. uh, interactions for that. What would be your first recommendation for them in terms of the recommender or re retrieval model to right. use? I mean, like, if you don't have a lot of data yet, like you could look at things like Word2Vec and try to find these lists of books that are similar, right? Like mm -hmm. you can mine the internet for these types of things. Mm -hmm. So you like, especially if you don't have a lot of data yet, you will have to add either external knowledge or kind of rule-based systems that can do like similar to how Spotify got away with in here with like with editors. Mm -hmm. You could also use like humans in the loop in order to build up right. like a, a relatively okay um, recommender system. You can start with just popularity based as well. So there, there are all kinds of like um, things you can do to just get it kickstarted and yeah, then hopefully. The start problem. That's exactly. It. And then to make sure that at some point you have enough user generated data that you can mm -hmm. fully flip the switch in order to just learn from there. I'm going to move very quickly now. Um, yes. What is Merlin Models? So that is a modeling library that basically gives. Um, different options for both retrieval models and for ranking models. Mm -hmm. So we integrate with TensorFlow, which is one of the big deep learning frameworks. We're in the works. We're integrating with PyTorch, which is the other big deep learning mm -hmm. framework. And then we integrate with a few sort of more specialized um, modeling layers, like LIDFM, that's kind of factorization right. machines. Um, we have Implicit, which is kind of a sort of matrix factorization library that is super optimized. Mm -hmm. Uh, for GPUs, which is built by one of the team members in, in the Merlin team. Oh. So right now we integrate with like four different options. We're planning to add a few more towards it. But most of our engineering effort is actually going into integrating with these deep learning type um, frameworks. Because so in short, it basically uh, adds um, what you call the framework or a connection to a set of well-established uh, retrieval models that you can have. And yes. And basically, since we also have a data pre-processing library we worked a lot in integrating these as tightly as possible mm. so when you pre-process and it gets a bit technical when you pre-process your data we allow you to give us a little bit of meta information to say okay these are these columns are user columns these mm. columns are item columns right. um, based on your transformation that you apply we can know whether it's a continuous feature or a categorical feature yeah. so we add all the metadata to what we call a schema and it also has like for a categorical feature, it has things like the cardinality. So if you have like the genres, mm -hmm. we automatically infer how many genres are there. and We give them all like a unique ID. Right. And we leverage that schema in our modeling library wherever we can. So then you can basically instantiate a model from a schema. And based on how you re represent your data, you can basically create the model in a one-liner. Because typically in a lot of these machine learning modeling frameworks, you have to first do your transformation where you basically give a lot of information, mm -hmm. but you can't bridge any of that information to your modeling step right. because it's typically a different system. It doesn't integrate. Mm -hmm. So we spend a lot of time to making the modeling as easy as possible mm -hmm. by just knowing a little bit more about your data and then making a lot of like opinionated calls. That is kind yes. of what is being done yeah, yeah. in the industry. So we want to give like sensible defaults. Yeah. But then if you want to learn more, we allow you to override all these things. And we wanted to, so it's kind of like, progressive we can kind of show you more if you want to sort of tweak more but mm -hmm. the, the the helping people to to choose the right model and the defaults and yes, hyperparameters exactly. for them that you can exactly yes what is nv tabular and perhaps rapids 
CUDF library? Yes. So MV Tableau is our pre-processing library. Um, and QDF is basically the GPU implementation of Pandas. So it's a library where you can work with data frames. So it's essentially kind of like Excel type sheets um, of data. So you have different columns with different properties and we allow you to sort of use standard transformations. So you can build up a program in MV Tabular to say these columns should be transformed like this, these columns should be transformed like that. And then we execute it super efficiently all on the GPU. And then we output the schema for you automatically as well. So we infer a bunch of things as well. Um, and then what is most similar to API wise? Is it more similar to NumPy or Pandas? So, so QDF is, is completely similar to, to Pandas. Yes. Um, MV Tabler has its own API, which looks maybe a little bit foreign uh, as like a standard Python developer, but it basically allows you to uh, chain operators together with like the right shift operators. Uh -huh. So you can basically say these columns as like a list with like the different column names yeah. should be processed with this operator kind of, and then you can build up a graph in that kind of API. And now we added tagging uh, lately, so then you don't have to say, okay, these are all the, the names of the columns, but you can say every column that's tagged like this mm -hmm. should be processed like that. Because if you think about NLP, it's like natural language processing, it's all language. So mm -hmm. that's kind of like from a modeling perspective, you completely standardize it. Any language you throw at it, it mm -hmm. will be able to learn from if it is like the same language kind of. Mm -hmm. With computer vision, it's the same thing. For tabular data, that's super hard. So typically in your modeling code, there's a lot of like generic as possible so that if another team comes along or you change something in the data, mm -hmm. your modeling code typically still work because you still get a schema out that looks slightly different, but it still has enough metadata to then instantiate everything ah, sounds, correctly. Sounds awesome. Um, before we move into more philosophical topics, yes. uh, it would be fun to hear more about your general field of interest of trying to make, I guess, deep learning work on tabular data. Mm -hmm. And it's been, uh, I mean, deep learning of, in, traditionally, of course, works well for images, text and audio. Right. Uh, but with tabular data, it's still been struggling a lot. What, what's your thought about that? Do you think that will continue to be the case? Or do you think that in a couple of years, Deep learning will also be as superior uh, for tabular data? Um, it depends on your data size. So um, deep learning typically is hungry for data. Mm. So I think that's um, also why deep learning for the first time on tabular data started to outperform like more traditional algorithms like rated boosted decision trees on recommender systems in general, mm. because that was like the first kind of tabular use case that had massive data sets that actually then made sense to to uh, construct specialized deep neural networks for it. Yeah. So I would say if your data set is large, then I would expect that if you train the right neural network, yeah. it would start to outperform the gradient boost and decision trees. The problem is that a lot of these open source data sets are super small, mm. or companies think that a large data set is 100,000 or 200,000 uh, rows, mm. which is typically not the case. Like you need much more and the more features you have, typically also the more data you need in order for the model to learn. Mm. Um, but hopefully over time, we can start to make deep learning more efficient as well when it comes to the data and therefore um, make it more generally applicable for, for normal tabular data sets as well. There have been a number of models for still working with tabular data in deep yes. learning space. Do you have any favorites one or the one that you think have a big future potentially? So on the ranking, so like basically the DCN model, the deep and cross network mm -hmm. V2 from Google and the DLRM, basically these type of networks that can learn these higher level feature interactions. Right. Um, I think they have like a, a bright future. 
Um, I also think that, especially in the recommender space, like if you can make your recommender into like a session-based type fashion, yeah. where you can get it more sequential information, so not just a user and an item, but on the user side also say, these are the last 100 tracks it interacted with, and these are maybe the last 100 artists it interacted and with. during a time frame as well, I guess. Yes, so you can make it much more contextual, mm. and then you can start to utilize as well, like these transformer architecture and all these oh, like yeah. newer... So transformer has the place you think for Tableau yes. in the future. Yes, yeah. Know, if you At least in, for sure in recommender systems, but we expect it in, in more places as well. So one mm. of the, the first library I, I, I helped build at... at uh, NVIDIA was Transformers for Rec, where basically right. we're, we're integrating the Hugging Face Transformers library, but then allowing you to pass in tabular data where maybe one column is sequential. So it could be that you have one text column. Was it, it was another one called Bird for Rec as well, right? Yeah, so that was the first one that had success with kind of using a transformer. And then mm -hmm. our paper showed that with our library, with newer type algorithms like ExcelNet and like mm -hmm. uh, other types one, we were actually outperforming um, the bird for egg. Oh, nice. Um, nice. And we also, it kind of showed that because like in, if you think about like democratizing recommender systems, kind of our playbook a little bit is coming also from Hugging Face, which has mm -hmm. the, as this French company is doing this for NLP, mm -hmm. National Language Processing. They had like tremendous impact on the whole um, industry because they have this library where every new paper gets implemented and they share pre-trained models from this. Mm -hmm. So our goal is kind of doing that for the recommender space, but it's it's fundamentally a different problem, of course, because when we can't train a model for these companies because they own the data, we don't. So we yeah. kind of have to give them the architecture and the type of things they're, they're working for that. Mm -hmm. And then they have to do it on their own, um, which also means that the, the, the how the data are structured and stuff could be so different from mm -hmm. one data set to the other. Right. So that if we do a lot of experiments on public data sets, there's no guarantee that what we found on those public data sets translate or correlate right. with what you have internally at your yeah. company. Mm -hmm. So that means that from an engineering perspective, our libraries have to be super composable mm -hmm. and you have to like change one bit for another very easily in order mm -hmm. to then come up with the best system for your mm -hmm. um, infrastructure. So we, we spend a lot of time in sort of making adding composability to like the pre-training steps so that mm. like yeah for these transformers like there's the type of task that you train mm. you have like a mass language modeling and you have a few others so we showed that like changing the la the pre-training strategy and changing the architecture um, from what was used in the paper could actually get a beneficial impact because these Transformers architecture are typically made for natural language processing but now we're applying it to a domain that's completely different so we're trying to mix and match and make that easier so that you as a company can kind of come up with the best configuration that works for you. Sounds awesome. Um, and I want to start moving into more philosophical ones. So perhaps we should take a small <laughs> shot as well before Let's we do, do it. Goran, are you up for it? Um, well? Happy cool. Easter, right? Happy Easter. Thanks, great. Okay, so um, perhaps one of the more philosoph uh, philosophical things and more, I guess, long-term things that NVIDIA is working with is also the Omniverse. I think we mentioned that partly in the beginning. Um, what is that? And, and do you, what's your thoughts about that? Do you think that will be a, bi a big thing? <clears throat> yeah, so it's basically a digital version of real-life um, places, mm -hmm. the real world, and everything is like physics informed. So mm -hmm. it's, it's as close as possible to the real world, yeah. which is 
super important for uh, things like robotics or self-driving cars where obtaining training data is super expensive. Mm-hmm. So the more you can simulate, um, that, that makes it much easier to generate training data that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully if it's like realistic enough, then it will translate to the real world. Mm-hmm. I mean, as we said, I think in the beginning, it's it's kind of a natural, uh, you know, really good fit for NVIDIA since, you know, it started off as a gaming company, has awesome tools yes. and experience in graphics and how to render and build. Yes, I, I have a question. So what is the difference between Omniverse and Metaverse and Multiverse? And <laughs> Awesome. No, I'm yes. serious. No, 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 of course. Yeah, please. Omniverse Mark. is like the, the platform that NVIDIA built to generate these um, virtual worlds. And they are super useful for the metaverse, which is this like general term for like us living in virtual worlds, essentially. Mm-hmm. So it's like one system that helps you generate these things very easily with like designers, but also adding enough flexibility to make sure that certain objects behave. So you can put an AI algorithm, how a certain object moves in that world. So, so you get a lot so of it's, complexity. So it's a tooling to add or create your own like metaverse in some way. Is that the yes. way to phrase it? Or? Yeah, so there are like many different use cases. So like the, the, the biggest use case now is, for instance, like uh, Amazon warehouses, they can completely get a virtual replica of their warehouse, which means that if they make like a scheduling decision or like what changes if we change the color of certain of our boxes, then they can first um, do this, like they can simulate and they can kind of see what happens. And then Mm -hmm. based on that, they can make educated decisions around, okay, maybe this is what we have to do in the real world. Mm -hmm. What what is a metaverse, by the way? Perhaps we should try to go back and and try to define that in some way. I, I think my definition would be us living in a virtual world, so building a virtual world that behaves like our real world. So mm-hmm. it, it feels like it's the next computing platform or like it could be, mm-hmm. like if we have VR goggles or like AR, that like if it's more and more us living in like a virtual world. Mm-hmm. So Facebook is pushing this narrative or like Meta, I should say, they actually changed their name because of the metaverse, yeah. that they want people to get an Oculus or one of these VR goggles and then start taking meetings in this virtual world with their people to get like a sense that you're closer to each other, even though you're all working remotely. That's just one of the use cases and there are many others. Could, would you argue like even like simple games potentially is, is a metaverse, like a Grand Theft Auto is a metaverse in itself. Is that a fair way to describe it? Potentially, yeah, I think so. I mean, like with some, okay, I'm going to sound old again, but some of the kids that are growing up now, mm-hmm. like they, they have a lot of social interaction in these virtual worlds and that could for sure be Grand Theft Auto or mm-hmm. like whatever game they're playing. So I think if, if, if it has impact on your real life and you have social interactions there and it makes you feel that it's sort of, it's closer to reality kind of. I, mm-hmm. I, to me, it would have like some sort of social element that you're somehow interacting with people, with real things, does tactile connection to the real world or could like Minecraft as well be seen as like a isolated I metaverse? would say so, yeah, because you still have connections with real people. Yeah, like, right. like the people that are in there are, are real, but mm-hmm. like the world is completely different to ours. So if it's just AI people in there, is this not a metaverse anymore? That's a good question. I would still say it is because as, as a human, you would still perceive it yeah. as maybe they're real. It feels real. like it's yeah, human there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. I, I think we should have like a, um, a episode on this uh, by itself. Yeah. But this is coming actually yesterday came where Meta plans to take a nearly 50% cut 
on every virtual asset sold in their metaverse. <laughs> which was <laughs> not absurd. I mean, it was that was the plan from the beginning, yeah. right? Which is a little bit hypocritical because they were complaining quite a lot that Apple was taking 30%. So uh, <laughs> yes. here it goes with your 50, right? Yeah, I think uh-huh. the, the game has started. But there, there's a lot of like interest from like the Web3 community, sort of mm-hmm. crypto space to do these kind of things as well. I think part of this metaphors have elements like it's the social interaction but it's also economic value so you have elements like a house in this virtual reality or mm-hmm. um, like a certain object that you can sell for real money like there's value in it so you mm-hmm. could be like a millionaire in in kind of fake whatever right. you would call it in this world yeah. that would potentially also transfer to the real world as long as as, as soon as you can, can can sell it to someone else that is interested in it mm-hmm. Cool, but Omniverse also have more, like not only for for entertainment purposes, right? right. So you can have like digital twins in some way. Yes. Yeah, I think right now they're mostly focusing on the business use cases, but there's no one, um, like everyone can use this tool to kind of do more consumer facing things as well. Like I think NVIDIA tries to be more like a platform like play here where they want to give people the tools to turn it to something useful. And then one of these tools could be companies that are using it to simulate things. Mm-hmm. Another thing could be that someone builds a game like World of Warcraft through this that is like closer to reality. Mm-hmm. And, and for more commercial, more commercial purposes, it could be like to, as you said, you know, simulate a warehouse or a self-driving right. car or some kind of manufacturing plant or right. whatever. And it also like they, they showed demos from like individual designers that could like design realistic looking things way easier on their own mm. but right now for instance if you want to like drop a ball mm. and sort of like like there needs to be a whole team sort of ensuring that that looks realistic with like the light that comes off like how it falls mm. and right now they have this like language i don't know exactly how it's called but basically you describe what needs to happen in that scene mm. and then since it's physically physics informed they can kind of generate it for you looking realistically so they they showed like I think they give this tool like a few demos ago to a bunch of designers and the stuff that they could come up with on their own was really impressive. And then mm. if you would see how much, for instance, Pixar needs to spend on these things <laughs> to make it look realistic. Mm. So in that sense, it could also be just an animation that you make of it. It doesn't need right. to be like a virtual world. They can basically, like the, the possibilities are, are endless. But Omniverse then, is it fair to say it's, it's uh, similar to what um, Merlin is a set of libraries for recommender systems. Yes. Omniverse is a set of or a platform for building metaverses. Exactly. Yes, that's how you can see it. And then they have like a cell driving car division as well. That's basically, and it's all using the same hardware to build these things, mm. but then focus on a specific vertical. So cell driving cars is one. They have genomics. They have like uh, healthcare. Didn't they have one for like climate change, trying to simulate yes. the whole world yeah, or something? Yeah, exactly. What was that called? Um, yes. I think they're still doing it. They're getting like further and further. So there they also have like physics informed neural networks that they're trying yeah. to simulate what's going to happen in the weather. And they're kind of been showing recently that they need to have a few more orders of magnitude larger like size compute in order to do this realistically but for like constrained um instances they could show that they are much better now at it so for the first time they could be, be better at it at humans so there's there's a lot happening there as well it's nice to hear that nvidia has uh, computational problems and, and not having yes. their computational needs met no definitely not we need a few more <laughs> orders of magnitude higher in order to uh to keep pushing and if, like if we compare these deep like large neural networks to the amount of like mm. neurons that you have in your brain, we're also mm. quite a few orders of magnitude behind, of course. But what's the right way to view it? it, it this kind of Earth, Earth 2, whatever it was called, um, 
Is, is, is it correct to say that by having a digital twin of the Earth in some way? That's one then, of the ultimate goals, actually, yeah. Yeah, and then trying to, I guess, simulate with different changes uh, that we have in the world, see how that impacts climate change in a faster pace, basically, and, and in that way try to experiment with yes. ways to fight climate change, right? Exactly. But the, 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 the digital twin of the Earth, like there's many, many more different use cases as well. So they're trying to now have one that's just all the roads in all the world. So they're trying to focus on the roads for self-driving cars okay. in like the US, I think Europe and Asia. Yeah. And then I think they started like a sort of focused effort. I don't know exactly. But then at some point, like if you have enough self-driving cars driving, so they have like this deal with Mercedes and a few others, mm. then at some point you can do the same as Tesla is doing, where you have so many sensors on the road that at some point you just keep updating in real time mm. the different roads of the world. Mm. And with that, you can do all kinds of stuff as well, of course. So it's it's like looking at it from, from different angles. I mean, I think it's really awesome to see how we can start to use all the amazing computational power that the media provides for something really good and yes. important for our society. Yes. And they, they yes. try to do a lot of like genomics as well, and like COVID research. Like there's a lot like of uh, um, progress recently happening in drug discovery as well, mm. which is partly interesting because it's kind of a matching problem. So a lot of the algorithms yeah, we're right. using for recommender systems are also using apparently in drug discovery, which is interesting. interesting. So we haven't really started looking at that as being Merlin, but we, we've seen some libraries that they're using mm. um, and there's a lot of similarities. So that might be like a use case that we'll look at afterwards as well. Mm. One very common topic that we speak about in this pod is about the power of the tech giants. And I would argue that NVIDIA is one of the tech giants as well. Yes. They recently surpassed Meta, right? In valuation. Yes. yes. At least for a brief moment in time. I'm not sure how it is now because the stock went down a bit afterwards. Yeah, Meta like went down kind of Yes, it's strongly, very right? volatile. But yeah, for a while in, in market cap, they were higher. Maybe they're still, I don't know. But uh, mm. yeah, it's in like the, let's say, 400 to 600 billion range. So it's, uh, it's a lot. Mm. Um, I, I do think that the power of these big platforms is, is an issue. I think at this moment in time, I don't think NVIDIA is there yet that it's starting to abuse its power, but they've definitely like they're with the, the largest tech companies in the world that are still like a few times bigger than, than NVIDIA is. Like mm. I think Microsoft is like two trillion now or something, two and a half, mm. Apple is something similar. Mm. Um, th that is challenging. And I think AI will have a big factor in that as well. And that, that is something I, I do worry about it a little bit. So what do you worry about? I mean, for one, uh, we what we have said before is the tech giants have found a way to use data and AI in a way to right. scale up their business and, and automate a lot of their processes. And it works really well for them. And in that way, they can scale up their business and the monetary gains that they can have. And a lot of other companies try to follow, but it's really hard. Uh, right. And you don't have all the research groups and you know, uh, knowledge that these kind of big tech giants mm -hmm. have. And, and NVIDIA, you know, with all the, they, they do a lot of research as well, right? Yes. Yeah. They really amazing I mean, I think things. the AI community in, in a way is, is good because they do a lot of like public research and there's mm -hmm. a, like a strong culture around publishing everything. Yeah. So I think it's, it's much better than maybe like pessimists would think it is because there's much more sharing going on between these big companies. Yeah. But there's definitely like a big, computational budget aspect that is starting to get tricky. Like the larger these models are becoming, mm. um, the lar like a fewer amount of companies are able to pull it off, right? Like it's not only yeah. just paying for the compute, but it's also the actual um, experience of, of how to do it, right? how to do it and yes. how would you experiment with it? It's not just, okay, I spent 
two million dollars to train like GDP or mm -hmm. like GDP three or four or whatever it is, but it's also experiment and getting more like if you need to train engineers to get more used to how these large models are working you will have to give them iteration cycles so that means that that will cost a lot yeah but how, how do you i mean for one it, it would be weird i think to blame nvidia for the success they are right. they have had i mean they have simply become the most dominant player in the ai hardware space for a good reason which is simply that they provide awesome products but it also is potentially a problem from a monopoly point of view if you right. don't have a like a working market uh, with competitors. Do, do you have any thoughts about that? You know, we also have a licensing structure that they have with consumer grade versus like uh, if you have uh, you know data clusters that you put to cards in, etc. I mean, th they can more or less choose their terms because you're so yes. dependent on NVIDIA these days. Do you think, what do you think about that? What is, I mean, let's imagine that you, you were Jensen how now and you know you you have a way to say okay i can 10x this company because we i have an awesome idea and, and if we do this it will you know 10x the company valuation in in five years but that will mean that we will dominate the world even more how, would you yeah, do it how, how should I you think, do it uh maybe i was speaking for it but it still feels like nvidia is the underdog here it feels like uh, an apple or facebook or meta now and google mm -hmm. and amazon are much larger they all have their public clouds which yes. just make an insane amount of money yeah. so i think it's expected that they will start to move more and more towards building their own hardware as well yeah. which is potentially a threat so you are starting to see a lot of competitions here yes, there are the more and more companies giants. that that start to run their own hardware as well um and yeah, I think th that is in a way it's good because there, there's more competition, like more competition needed. Mm. Um, what I worry about a little bit is like, it's already like, I think the highest estimates are right now that I think 40% of all the money that VCs invest in startup flows back to Google and Facebook and Amazon in, oh, in, really? the, um, in terms of like advertising that you're kind of, it's kind of a tax, right? Yeah. Like you don't even have a choice if you want to grow, then you need to spend these money on, on, mm -hmm. on ads and also on public cloud. So there are more and more companies like Spotify as well. They're just completely relying on GCP. So there's so much money like flowing back on Apple is just, of course, the, the app store. Um, I think if the next frontier is like the metaverse, like, yeah, what you just showed is, is scary that if they really think that they can pull it off 50%, mm. I think Apple at some point tried to like release Apple news and they also were thinking about a 30, 40% take or something. Mm. So I think that is clearly monopolistic like behavior. I haven't seen that yet from Nvidia. Maybe it's there, but they, like I work on this tiny little, it feels like a little startup in this massive company and I joined within COVID. So I, I have very little inside information, but happy to speculate. Um, but especially if these models are these large language models are keep growing, mm -hmm. I think it's a tr tricky point for companies like Spotify as well. Like they, they have more and more interest towards it because they're doing podcasts, which is language, yeah. but what are they going to do? Are they going to treat it like cloud? and are they going to just outsource it to Google and just spend even more money on them? Or are they going to try to do it in house, which potentially is like a huge investment with like unclear how much that will pay off. And I think mm. more and more of these companies will have to make these decisions, which like even more reinforcement, like reinforces did like very heavy monopolistic like environment that we're in. And I think like, yeah, the metaverse is one like the, like in all these potential new computing platforms, it's always the few companies that are trying to get there first and trying to become the platform. Mm. 
and then basically imposing a tax on anyone else. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very hard for, for startups to compete with that. And I think, yeah, also in Europe, we have very little success in that. So I think that is We have, tricky. right? I mean, it's not a, a single cloud provider, at least to the no. scale of uh, American and Chinese ones. Um, exactly. Isn't that strange? And these are con- consumer-facing internet companies. It's kind of like yeah. Spotify and maybe a few financial yeah. services that's like in fintech. We have a few, but it, it's not much. Yeah. Um, and I think that is worrying. And I think that they're trying to change that, but I think it's it's tricky. Yeah, that's hard. It's it's a bit of a problem when companies you know, are too successful, but you shouldn't really blame the company for that. They're simply doing awesome yes. stuff. But the government can take action here. Like there, yeah. For some of these places, it feels like regulation would help. Yeah. But it would be interesting to see how that plays out as well. Like GDPR like mm. was, I think, a good idea. So there's kind of the, the privacy regulation where right. kind of Europe led the way. Mm. I think in a way it also led to like even harder to compete with these big tech companies because for them exactly. it's much easier to comply. So it's also there's yes. all these second order effects towards this i think that makes that puts europe in like a tough spot but at least they are not getting a lot of tax money from these large tech companies so they are incentivized to at some point maybe change something like i think the us is not going to do it so maybe europe is going to lead the way there but mm-hmm. it feels like either we're going to be in a world where it's going to be way more privacy like aware and like more and more like uh, of the data stays on the device and maybe europe will ensure that with some of the regulations but kind of the world but that it could uh, turn out because you know I agree completely what, with what you said and, and it's something we've said as well a lot a number of times that GDPR has awesome intentions yes but then but it the turned devil out is in the that, details and it's yeah uh, that's the implementation right. of it it turned out that you know it's super hard for smaller mid-sized companies to compete because they don't yes. have the legal resources to know how to comply exactly. with it but it's not a problem for the big tech giants so in reality it actually increased yes. the AI divide potentially yes. or the divide to the big tech giants. And I think it's interesting as well what's going to happen with this whole Web3 crypto movement that is kind of... What moving. do you think about blockchain? Oh, since you opened that can of worms as well, what do you think about blockchains in general and, and their importance to... I, I started to look at it more seriously just because the amount of engineering resources that is going into it and mm-hmm. like a lot of people I respect that. So it's not just grifters, like it's a lot of really impressive tech that it goes into it. Mm-hmm. So there, there might be like a bright future there, but it all falls or stands with regulation. And I think it's very unclear um, what's going to happen with that regulation. Um, mm. I do think um, potentially having like a decentralized social network where basically people can choose what algorithm to use and have different companies mm. that can have their own timeline as like a Rexus engineers that could excite me. I think that could give people more control that could sort of people can be in control if they want to be in a platform that is sort of pushing free speech or is more heavily policing. I think is that, 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 is that a good way to say it? Because, you know, I have a bit of a, I'm a bit, disap- I mean, disappointed simply at, at the current implementation of blockchains. I mean, if you think about the current, you know, the intentions is, are great. I mean, right. you want to remove the middleman and it works for currency rather well yes. and you can remove the dependencies to, to banks, etc., and have some kind of democratized or more decentralized kind of implementation mm-hmm. of things. So the idea is great, but then in reality, if you try to find one really successful non-currency based blockchain technology, it is very few, I would argue. Can you think of, of one big successful blockchain uh, product these days? Um, not yet, outside of like uh, currencies. 
Um, I do think there's a lot of potential in like the metaverse type place. I do think there's a lot of potential in like the gaming space where like there's a lot of people that spend seven hours a day in these games and like if they have... Well, yeah, and, and actually that, if you think, you know, someone suggested, for, for example, that we could have a regulation saying you should have the option to choose what kind of news feed recommender system you should have right. in Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatnot. Right. And and that could potentially, I'm not sh- sure if I see the blockchain connection here, but anyway, that could be some way to, to try to have a bit more ownership as a yes. user in how these big tech giants are working. Yeah, I, I think that is... Uh, very promising to me. I'm, I'm not sure if we can get there, especially because that's also why why I brought it up because it's completely sort of against what Europe is trying to do with GDPR, like the right to be forgotten. Like if that mm. data is all on the blockchain, like how can you make sure that <laughs> yeah. like your data is deleted? Yeah. So pulling that up from an engineer perspective, I think is very tricky and I'm yeah. not completely convinced that the blockchain is the right way to do it. But just yeah having one provider that has the data and multiple sort of platforms can talk to that as a front end, I think that is very exciting. I think that should be where we should be heading because I think people need more control. And I mean, now, like today that Elon Musk uh, tried to take Twitter private and uh, 400%. He did. Yeah, he did actually make an offer, right? Yes, for the he whole made an Twitter. offer, exactly. Yeah. So he wants to have 100% and take it private yeah. with the arguments of free speech. Yeah. And I think that's valid. That's capitalism at work. But I think there is also, like, we don't really know what will happen if, if it's only free speech. Like, I think mm-hmm. what happens with bullying, like, there's a lot of, like, things that is sort of unclear what would happen. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it seems like the, and people feel very strongly on either side, right? On the free speech side or on kind of the policing and sort of like making sure that people and, are not getting know, fake news and all of that. Propaganda that's happening. Exactly. You know, yes. So it yeah. seems like the only possible solution is to then take the data out, have multiple front ends and then let people choose. Like if you want to go in the Wild West, be my guest. But if you want to be like a more police version, it's, it's out there as well. Mm-hmm. Because right now it's just like, yeah, Elon Musk is very wealthy, has this opportunity to take it to the free speech side before they were heavily more on the policing side. Mm-hmm. So it feels like yeah, then it's all of a sudden like people with money deciding, which also doesn't seem like the best possible solution. You think there is a, such a thing as a good dictator? Like uh, Ideally, yes. But I think in, in the end, it's like there are so many sort of second order effects that like we, we have to live through as a society. Like social media only have been here for like, what would it be like four or five years? So like... Not even ten thousand days, maybe. So, like, on like the, the whole society. Facebook, super, you know, Facebook came online like two thousand and five or something, right? So yes, but I mean more like an entire generation growing up with okay. it and yes. having most okay. like severe effects. I think when we started with Facebook, like it didn't affect us much. Like mm. it was like fun to be on it. Mm. At some point, the moms and the dads took it over, and then people moved to Instagram or something mm. else. Yeah. But I think now there is an entire generation that completely grew up at Instagram and ha- like there's a lot of effects on that, on these kids that we, we can only know when just living through it kind of. And I think, so it's in my mind way too early to make strong calls on whether we should be completely on the free speech side or something else. We just, we have to experiment. But right now it's like the environment that we're in, we can't run enough experiments in order to figure it out, I think. So the scientist in me is not happy with like how many sort of iterations we get because I think we can't just 
pause the world and think about the best solution. Like, I think that doesn't work. Like, we mm. need to run experiments. We need to figure out what happens. We need to philosophize about what happens. Perhaps you should have a digital twin on Twitter or something. That would happen, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be hard to pull off, though. But, like, something like that, where you can simulate these things, I think, yes. is, is the only way to, to actually get to a, a better solution. Because I think right now, people feel very strongly on each side, but I feel mm. like there's not enough data in order to make justified calls on, on either call, in your side. Awesome. That's uh, perhaps one of the last questions, potentially, <laughs> before the after after work. <laughs> um, so, you know, AI is growing very rapidly in, in terms of power. And mm -hmm. of course, we still today have a lot of very narrow AI tasks that are superhuman in terms of, you know, playing chess right. or perhaps uh, driving cars at uh, points mm -hmm. soon, um, etc. And then it is growing increasingly general you know, with models like GPT-3 and these kind of large language models and going multimodal and multitask now with thousands and, and if not millions of tasks with this big, you know, Google pathways Palm, yeah. system, Palm, yeah, exactly. Um, so we, we can very easily, I would say, see the trend where it's moving. It's moving mm -hmm. to these kind of large models. They are getting increasingly multitask and increasingly general. Um, are you concerned with that? W what do you think will happen in like five, ten years? Uh, do, you, do you see a point where potentially we will have like some kind of singularity where com AI systems will surpass I, humans I in we, most tasks? I think we're pretty far away from it. I, I don't expect it in, in my lifetime, but who knows? Like I, I, I try to keep like an open mind, but I think there is too much stuff that we still have to do. Um, I think it's also with these really large language models, it's really hard to figure out where we are in the life cycle because I think we don't understand the complexity of the brain too much. So we mm. don't understand the end goal that much, but we also don't understand too much about the internal workings of these really large neural networks. Like right. there's only maybe in the order of tens of thousand people at max right now that have the capacity to really tinker with these models. And because in a way it becomes like a natural science, right? There will mm. be people studying these large language models and trying to understand patterns and trying to find yeah. new things. So in a way it's moving computer science and machinery more to like a typical science, like psychology, which I yeah. think is, is interesting. Perhaps it's moving from natural to artificial science. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But we need more people that are classically yeah. trained in order to do these things in order to, tinker with is kind of like a black box and trying to understand more in the form of experiments. Mm. And I think we're but, just but starting if, uh, with that. if Jensen is correct, you know, that we are going to see, we have already seen like a million X in mm -hmm. terms of uh, the performance that we can solve tasks with in right. terms of uh, its speed or yeah, time or memory or whatnot. Um, and he says that will continue for coming years. If we continue to do a million X um, in, in coming years, And that basically means a very strongly exponential increase in our right. abilities to solve different problems and how intelligent in some way the system will be could potentially go really quickly, right? Yes, but um, I mean, I, I agree here with like Jan LeCun, which is saying that, yeah, you need, there is only so much you can do with supervised machine learning. And now like the really big advantage of these large language models is that there are vast amounts of text out there and we can do self-supervised learning. So right. we can try to predict the next word. And by getting really good at that, you learn a lot of structure about the real world. Mm -hmm. 
but it still needs an insane amount of data in order to do so. And not everything in the world is described in natural language. So there is still, like, I think in order to really get there, there's still quite a lot of improvements we need to do from the algorithmic side of things. Like, mm -hmm. I think we need to do something similar for video mm -hmm. where you can try to predict with some uncertainty bounds, like what is going to happen in the next frame of a yes. video. And right now that space is just way too big. And I think, so that's one, you need to do it on, on video. And then I think the second step is you need to interact with the data, the, with yeah. the world. You need to, in order to make an action, see what happens and then learn from that. And I think if we start to do all of those things, then we'll, we'll get there and computers are a massive factor. Mm. But I'm not on the belief that just with language alone, you can get yeah. there. But yeah. uh, I could be surprised. Like they got way further with just language than I ever thought that would be. Yes. And it seems like these models have a pretty solid understanding of the world. So maybe you can pu push it a few more like orders of magnitude further. But I think even with the language models you have today, like they're way more powerful potentially than we might think. I think, I think that's a good conclusion to say because, uh, you know, I think most, or a lot of people agree that just language by itself and, and this kind of very simplistic objective right. of predicting the next word yes. seems to produce, you know, surprisingly powerful models, if you call it that. Yes. And that's, I guess, cool. I mean, a simple technique yes. like, like this just increases scale and, and yeah. suddenly seems to do a lot of cool stuff is impressive. Yes. Probably not perhaps the, the best way to do it, um, but still it works surprisingly good. Uh, if we do it a, a bit more simple and um, a way that I, if we just think like five years ahead or something, mm -hmm. uh, one way that I usually try to phrase it is that I, I would argue that AI are good at some tasks. Right. Humans are good at other tasks. Mm -hmm. AI, for example, can be good at going through a huge amount of videos or thousands of pages of text and can do that quickly, right. but it does it rather superficially. Whereas humans, you know, they, they can't efficiently go through a huge amount of data, uh, like for a recommender systems or whatnot, to find, you know, the proper score, but it can look through a small set of data points and do a much deeper kind of analysis of that than right. an AI of today can. So then I would argue that I think we should rather develop the AI towards what the humans are bad at and have a nice complement of the two. So we use AI for what that is good for and humans for what they are good at right. and try to develop the research in that direction. And then we can find, you know, the best use of AI and humans together. Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, and I mean, like what these language models are seeing supposedly are, are pulling off. I've never been able to play with it myself too much, mm. but I've seen the demos. Mm. It's super impressive. And I think even if the AI in the next five years doesn't like uh, scale up a few orders of magnitudes anymore, which is like are stable, mm. even then I think there is an insane amount of opportunities just with the algorithms we have today. And mm. I do think it will grow further. Yeah. But I do think there is a lot of potential second order effects that will be very interesting to mm. see where like what's happening to search. Like will it just be a giant neural network that will do all of it? <laughs> and then if so, like what is going to happen with like search optimization? Like are there going to be companies that are trying to sort of have these poisoning attacks there yeah. sort of trying to maximize the log likelihood yeah. that something still looks like one class, but it is something else um, that part I'm, I'm a bit worried about and also maybe like the computer security kind of aspect on it. it's like the like any rule-based system so like operating system and all of that there is like this whole secondary market of like zero days where like there are people that found vulnerabilities in these systems that are secretly selling to governments so they can be hacking in this yeah. Like what will be the zero day equivalent on these large mo language yeah. models? Like we don't really know. And there, there's an incentive for the people that find it to yeah. not give it out. Yeah. That is a bit 
and wild word and even to speak about you know using ai for warfare or for exactly, you know, yes. propaganda purposes yes. and so many things that uh, of course it can be abused and yes. is being abused to a large extent already today but i am an optimist so, so i do think in, in yes. general it's a good thing and i think it's yeah. also unpreventable for humans like well, we're gonna head to that direction anyways like all the incentives are lining up and i do think in the end there will be a, a thing that's used for more good than it is for more harm but yeah but more power comes more i think nvidia is doing a lot of great work to to move in that direction especially with the climate change kind of project etc and and awesome recommender systems uh, yes. as well that we are having i guess we we're basically living in very interesting times are coming five years i think so many things will happen yes. that will be very exciting to see what i'm very happy to live through this time especially with the yes. background that we have in machine learning yeah. i think yeah. it's uh, uh, extremely interesting to see what happens. Mark, what's happening next in your life, coming months, uh, personally, professionally, something special coming up? Uh, I guess we're going to stick around in Stockholm for a bit longer. We just bought an apartment, okay. um, which is nice. So I moved in there with my girlfriend. Um, before that, like yeah, I moved here again, like in May when I joined NVIDIA. So she was living in Paris. I was living in London. So yeah. um, we're living here now, which is fun. Um, I think we, we've done a lot of the groundwork with, with Merlin. So I hope next year we'll be more actually seeing how customers are using it and actually getting real life usage of it. Mm -hmm. uh, because at time it really felt like playing a game because I was building a software that was not really useless uh, with people that I've never met that are spread out all around the world, <laughs> um, which has been challenging at times. So I'm very looking forward to making it more real by mm -hmm. meeting these people that I work with every day. Making the product into a reality in terms of like actually getting real use usage of it. Um, so I'm excited to see if like the sort of the seeds that we planted and we've been grow working very hard to grow a little bit, mm -hmm. if it actually turns into like something that has like real world usage because you never really know that if you start, of course. I start meeting people in post corona times, hopefully sometime soon right yes i mean the first step is being on this podcast talking <laughs> about tech for two hours like i only knew that virtually now so it's nice yeah. to actually uh see a real face so it's it uh no I, I think it's and it's gonna feel much nicer now as well of course having left lived through it and now like re sort of uh properly seeing how nice it can be to like meet people and sort of have those social aspects that maybe always you took as a given mm. um so i'm no I'm, I'm excited about what will happen in the next year Awesome. Anyone that you would recommend to come to this podcast, someone that you would like to listen to that we should invite potentially? Um, I mean, uh, here in Stockholm, uh, I would say Oscar Stahl, like mm -hmm. the, the yes. lead, he used to be a lead of uh, the personalization mission. From what I heard, he just stepped down. But I think he's, he's one of the people that's like on, on the top of actually trying to huge machine learning, especially recommender systems at that mm. huge scale and sort of build an organization behind it and sort of try to lead that in, in a good way. So, uh, mm. yeah, I would be very curious to to hear that. I'm not yeah. sure how much is under an NDA and like how free you can talk, but uh, yeah. I know him rather well. And he's, uh, yeah, I think he can speak. He knows yes. what to say and not to say. It, exactly. So. <laughs> I, I think he has enough practice with that. So, yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, great, great suggestion. Cool, Mark. Thank you very much for coming. And um, we had so many topics we didn't cover, as usual, I guess. But in this <laughs> case, I did really want to cover a lot more topics. And it was awesome to actually be a bit techy for once. <laughs> Perhaps a bit uh, Gordon, I think, with, I th think that we went too technical. But uh, for me, it, it's nice to go that uh, in that direction sometimes as well. Um, that was fun. No, I, uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much, Mark. Let's do an after-after work. Yes, thanks for having me. Excited.